Astonishing Legends would like to thank BetterHelp, Miller High Life, Western Digital, our contributors at Patreon.com, and you, our listeners, for making tonight's show possible. Two weeks ago, we brought you part one of our two-part series on Alien Autopsy, possibly one of the most successful paranormal hoax films ever created. We sat down with British director, producer, conceptual artist, and magician, Spiros Malaris, to hear his credible and detailed story about exactly how Alien Autopsy came to be, right down to the sheep's brains used as a prop. An interesting thing happened when we posted part one of the series, however. Some people were so sure Alien Autopsy was a hoax that they didn't even bother to listen to it. Isn't that fascinating? Even after all these years of listening to Astonishing Legends, they thought they knew what we were going to say about Alien Autopsy. Unfortunately for them, they've missed a chance to explore just how much work goes into a successful hoax like this and therefore a chance to recognize a similar one in the future. Because even if you feel like you knew this wasn't real from the jump, someone out there is going to try it again at some point, and Spiros Molaris proves that if you're meticulous enough, you can pull it off. What we wanted to say about this particular astonishing legend is that the legend is the hoax itself. The legend is also the hoaxer, and the talented artist and sculptor he worked with. This is the thing about this story. It is mystery solved. It may be one of only a few we'll ever get to say that about. But what kind of show would we be if we didn't cover those from time to time too? We're here to explore all sides of the paranormal and to turn a blind eye to proven hoaxes, and possibly one of the most viewed paranormal ones ever pulled off, would be irresponsible. There is so much to learn from Spiros Malaris's journey, not only about hoaxes, but also about human nature. Welcome back to Astonishing Legends. I'm Scott Philbrook, and this is Forrest Burgess. I don't have a clue whether or not aliens exist. I'm not saying that. Just this one isn't real. Spiros Molaris. Join us tonight for the final part of our two-part series on the alien autopsy film and the rest of our interview with the man who made it. And we're back. That we are, folks. What? Well, okay. What were you doing there? I just try to keep it unfresh. Keep it unfresh or, or fresh? <laughs> I was going to say fresh, but it's not really that fresh, is it? <laughs> Welcome back, folks, to part two of our special on alien autopsy, or the alien autopsy. We've been debating mm. whether or not to use the in front of that. Mm-hmm. With our very special guest, Spiros Malaris. We've got a lot more to talk about in our wrap-up of this two-parter tonight, but first, a couple of quick orders of business. As I said last week, the Kecksburg Volunteer Fire Department charity shirt is currently in the AstonishingLegends.com store, and it is flying off the shelves. Thank you all so much for all the orders you've placed so far. Yeah, and all the proceeds from the sale of that shirt are going directly to the fire department there to help them out. And as we've said, a lot of that really goes to helping out their budget and income for the year, really keeps them going. And uh, especially since they had to cancel the UFO Festival this year. So this shirt is super cool, though, and operating on the theme of 
officially, it never happened. And that's related to the festival, or is it the crash itself we're talking about? <laughs> As the kids say, have fun with it. And by the way, those mm. shirts are made to order. It may take a little bit longer for them to get shipped to you. Just be patient with our, our merch guys, but they will get it to you. Our graphic designer, by the way, Tommy, he really outdid himself on this shirt. It is very, very cool. I love it. And the first run is only on sale until October 1st. We will consider a second run if there's more interest after that. And yes, we know some of our other merchandise is sold out right now. We're working on that. Mm. So uh, reordering stuff and a couple things being rejiggered. So please be patient. All righty then. Well, believe it or not, we have got a lot to talk about tonight. So let's get back into it. I think a lot of people are going to believe it because we always have a lot to talk about. <laughs> <laughs> well, so did our guest. So did our uh, guest. Yes. Yeah. And we're going to we're going to wrap up with him. And then we have a pretty healthy conversation coming after that about why we covered this story and what we think about it, mm. which I have to admit for me was a little bit hard to corral. But I, I first want to start with some of the reactions that we got online, which we mentioned the cold open. When we posted this topic, there was a few people who seemed to think they knew what we were going to say about it. And mm. as Forrest said in the cold open, I don't think they ever even listened to part one. And subsequently, they're probably <laughs> not listening right now. <laughs> so let's talk about them, shall we? <laughs> well, they'll, they'll figure it out anyway. Yeah. Well, look, I, I think this is another case of mystery solved. Let's move on. Now, I'm not saying this about those recent comments so much, but when it comes to certain topics we've covered, like the Patterson-Gimlin film or even Edgar Casey, we've noticed that usually the harshest criticism from those not liking us covering those topics often comes from people who haven't listened to the episodes. They're just rolling with their preconceived notions, which is understandable. That's just human nature. But it's not how we like to roll. I personally ascribe to the motto, notice everything, look at everything. And hey, if a topic just ain't your cup of tea, we're cool with that. As we always say, please come back when it is. But if these types of subjects interest you at all, then I think at the very least it'll be entertaining and we'll all learn a little something along the way. Ironically, we've also had people who didn't like it when we've covered a mystery and we didn't think there was a conspiracy or mystery behind it. Like with Polybius. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Did that make any sense? We had somebody, <laughs> no, it, is, it was one of the early comments where they were like, look, two shows in a row, uh, Kincaid's Cave and Polybius, and they didn't turn out to be real? It's like, <laughs> well, that's what we were trying to find out. I mean, they all can't be real, genuine paranormal mysteries. That's what we're here to do, suss it out, give you both sides, you make up your mind, we're going to tell you what we think. I guess that is how we roll. Yeah. So, but the story of Polybius, in my view, was fun to explore nonetheless. Absolutely. Didn't you think so? Yeah. That's what got Marie Mayhew on board. She heard that one. I'm like, why are these jokers? I got to get into that. <laughs> tell them what's what. And speaking of the Patterson-Gimlin film, there are a lot of similarities that are pretty interesting to this case, but also a lot of significant differences. And I think it's fascinating to line those up, how they were perceived. Now, Scott, let me ask you, before we did the PGF series, all 56 hours of it, you know, like how I keep changing and it gets longer <laughs> yes, and yes, longer, longer, and longer. In my mind, that's how it goes. Did you have any preconceived notions about it? I know we talked about this when we did it, but I just, it, it was a while ago. Yeah, I remember that when we first went into it, I was presuming that it was a hoax and we would easily prove that. Really? Yes. That's what's interesting is I was pretty neutral. I mean, like I told the story before, growing up in the Pacific Northwest, I was neutral about it. I just didn't know, but I leaned more towards believing it was real. I just didn't really think a lot about it. I just thought like, like well, like I said before, I guess that's what a Sasquatch looks like but I didn't think of the implications of it being real. I gave it more weight. That's a fundamental difference between you and me, I think, right. is that you do give more weight 
you're more ready to believe at the outset than I think I am. But you're, we take the same critical approach to the analysis. Right. But I think we start in different gates from, you know, as we, as we come into it. Perhaps generally, but I think with this film, what I'm saying is that because of hearing stories from trusted people growing up all my life, being immersed in that <laughs> Bigfoot culture up there a little bit, I was more ready to believe that it was a possibility, again, without thinking of the implications of it being real, just that like, wow, it looks pretty good to me. I don't know. I All right. I'm going to roll with it until I hear something different. Now, when it comes to the alien autopsy film, we, as we discussed in part one, my feeling was like, no, 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 no about this. It just, it didn't sit right. It was fun to consider the possibility and the implications of it being real. That's where it gets people. But just looking at it, like, yeah, we'll talk about this in the conclusions about uh, what didn't sit right. But it's like, is that what an autopsy room would really look like? Is that how they would do it? I don't know. And and so I wouldn't even say that I was eager and I wanted to believe it was real. I believed in the possibility of it being real or true or that other real genuine autopsies have taken place. I just didn't think this was it. So that's why I'm saying going into it, like I couldn't disprove it. But what my point is here is that it's fun to consider we're all listening to this show because hopefully we all have an interest in this, whether it's not specifically about aliens or UFOs, but it's taking a critical look and having some fun while doing it about these kind of weird things that pop up and what bigger and better one to do, no matter what you believe about it going into it. It's worth having a look. So the other thing I really love hearing from listeners is when they tell us that I really wasn't interested in this topic, couldn't care less. I listened anyway. And I left being entertained. Yeah. <laughs> they actually ended up enjoying it because they got surprised with it. And that really makes us feel like we accomplished something. Again, not trying to change any minds, just that we thought it was interesting. And we're very glad that you thought so too, even though you went in thinking like, this is a load of crap. And you came out going, well, I learned a little something I didn't know, which is what happened to us here. We'd certainly watched it. There was a lot of things that we learned about it, though, that we weren't aware of. And that's just the backstory. I'm not even talking about the hoax part and, and the mechanics of it. I'm talking about the evolution of the story and what happened. Because it is important in the paranormal world, as Scott was referring to earlier. Whether real or unknown or genuine or hoax, you should take a look at everything. And as I just said, there are significant similarities between the alien autopsy film and the PGF, but not so much about what creatures are seen in the film and how realistic they are, but by the aura of preconceived notions around it, believing and unbelieving. And at the time, what was seen on film, the alien autopsy film, could not be proven or unproven. And that remains at least true for the PGF, at least. So I think we should all keep in mind that what you believe about either's veracity, at the time of the airing anyway, is not proof either way. It's just an opinion. Well, I can't blame the people that skipped it or that didn't no. think they wanted to hear it. And I'll tell you why. Mostly what we do and what we've been doing for like five years now is the whole Dateline 48 Hours thing of mm. here's this mystery that happened and here's what seems to be the mundane explanation which makes perfect sense. Or does it? Yes, right. Like that's Keith Morrison, right? Or it does it? Out. And then things got worse. No, I admit that we, we like to do that. We like to look at the mundane, yeah. but of course also the possible supernatural explanations for things. So I think some folks thought we were going to pretend alien autopsy was real for an entire episode and then do another oh. episode about why it either could be 
or wasn't. And yeah, we've sort of been doing that for a while now, but we flipped the script on that this time. You see, for us, or for me anyway, the astonishing legend in this story is the hoax itself. It's what Spiros Malaris pulled off, a true magician's illusion. Extremely meticulous and exceptionally well-planned. That is the legend of alien autopsy. Now, we're going to have a lot more observations on that in our wrap-up and conclusions, but since our angle on this whole thing understandably confused some people, I just wanted to clear that up. But the other lesson is, you might think you know what we're going to say about a topic, but you don't. Remember that we're always going to try and surprise you. So we're going to encourage you to always give at least the first 90 minutes of an episode a chance before you write it off. (laughs) So you're talking about the first fifth of the... uh... Yeah, the first fifth. Okay, of an episode. Gotcha. And what are you going to do? You're quarantined, you're working from (laughs) home. Just put on the headphones and give it a good solid day before you decide you don't want to listen to the rest of it. Oh, dear. That's a huge (laughs) ask. And you can't study the hoaxer without looking at some of the most successful known paranormal hoaxes in history. It's remarkably easy now in hindsight, okay? Hindsight is twenty twenty, And after the hoax has been admitted and it makes the news and you say, oh yeah, I knew that all along. But did you? Did you really know? How could you know? Or did you just have a hunch? Hunches are great. Instincts are great. You have to embrace those. But when it comes to something more than circumstantial evidence about why alien autopsy was a hoax and you knew it from the start, what were your analytical and critical reasons that you can point to about it that definitely informed the idea for you that it was fake? And why is it important to know that? Because this is how you learn to better spot hoaxes in the future. Mm-hmm. Okay, we'll talk more about that after we finish up with Spiros. But we wanted to set the stage for the rest of this before we sit back down with him. All right, it's been two weeks. Sorry we had to split this one up with a dark week there in the middle. We don't usually Mm. do that with two-parters. But we're going to refresh your memory a little bit with a recap of all the major players here. Yes, and I guarantee it'll be a lot easier than following the recap and all the characters from the Netflix show Dark. (laughs) Oh, man. I love it in German, but man, who's that again? How did he? I might have stopped watching it, honestly. (laughs) I enjoyed it, but I also was like, this is, I'd need a notepad. So anyway. um, Oh, boy. But I guess you need that with our show. All right, these these are some of the major players in the show. First, we have Spiros Malaris, who has been our guest on the show and is going to be back tonight for a bit. He's a magician, showman, uh, technologist, producer, director. He's a jack of all trades. And uh, Mm -hmm. from Spiros' website description uh, of himself at the top, it says, director, producer, and conceptual artist. Mm -hmm. We also have Ray Santilli, a session musician, entrepreneur, record and film producer based in London, um, salesman, publishing and media licensing guy. Gary Shufield, Ray's friend Mm -hmm. and a media and film producing partner. We have John Humphreys, an artist, sculptor, uh, movie and TV special effects supervisor. And then we're going to mention Gareth Watson. He actually worked for Ray and Gary, and he was the man behind the window in the alien autopsy film with the uh, surgeon's mask on, although he's behind Mm -hmm. the window. And it turns out he was also the editor on the Amon Investigate show, which we'll be talking about tonight. That is interesting. Yes, yeah. it is. And and I just happened to see that on IMDb. Uh, last but not least, we have the man with the greatest name involved in this, Volker Spielberg, media licensing <laughs> expert and publisher and the financer behind the original $70,000 budget for Alien Autopsy. He paid for half of it and uh, Spiros paid for the other half. So these are all the players and their names will come up. We just wanted to remind you who they were. And we want to remind you also the big picture of how this whole thing played out. Spiros thought that the plan was to make this hoax footage then release it for free, and when the world got buzzing about it, come back and say, hey, you know what? We made this. We tricked you, and here's a documentary about how we did it, and then to license and sell the documentary explaining how they fooled so many people, which is why they put so much effort into making it so real. 
But according to Spiros, Ray Santilli began profiting off the hoax footage almost immediately. It never got to that documentary stage. There appeared to be no plan to make a documentary about it or how it was done because Ray was pretending it was real. And not only that, not telling Spiros how much income he was making from it along the way. So tonight we want to introduce the first segment of the second part of our interview with Spiros. And you remember in part one, towards the end, we found out that when Spiros went to the U.S. Library of Congress to register his full version of Alien Autopsy as a film made in 1995, he couldn't because Ray Santilli had already registered one and claimed it was a 1947 film. So there's a component of this that Spiros can hang his hat on in terms of the difference between what Ray says the film is and what Spiros says, because Ray has registered it as a 1947 film. If Spiros could prove that it's not a 1947 film or that some aspect of it's fabricated, then he can prove that Santilli is lying and simultaneously prove that the film is a hoax, and therefore he's theoretically entitled to a cut of the income made from it. So how does Spiros prove that? Well, as you heard at the end of part one, it turns out that after he thought he had given all the evidence, every possible thing, every shred of the film's production to Santilli, he found two tapes that had got left behind, still in his possession. Now, these kinds of tapes are called transfer tapes or telecine tapes, and telecine is a word for the process of running film through a machine with a scanner that projects light through the film so that it can be picked up and transferred to video. And you do this for a variety of reasons during the process of post-production. One is to see dailies, or rushes as they say, so you can see what you've shot and see if you need to reshoot something, how the project's going, or you want to start cutting it together or editing it together. So at this time, even in 1995, uh, you would have had to have some money. You could edit with video and use that video, and then you allow all the original film to stay safely tucked away until you've got the edit you want on the video. It's non-destructive because no matter what you do to the video, you're not hurting or using the film. Then you can go back and splice all the film together to match your edit. So these two tapes were probably just dailies or transfers or something so that Spiros could see what they had captured without having to use or damage the film, and they got left behind with him. Now here's the catch. These tapes, when you make a transfer tape, it always says the lab it was made at and the time and date that it was transferred, and sometimes it even has specifics about the type of transfer. Or, oh, we, we brought the contrast way up or something else about that. So the lab had, of course, put a date on the transfer of these two tapes, and what was that date? 1995. The alien is not on this footage, but the debris footage of the pieces of the UFO and the six-fingered control panels are. And on top of that, they look pristine compared to what's in the final alien autopsy film because Spiros hadn't yet aged them digitally. This was the raw original film. So that means these tapes prove that the debris footage, at the very least, was falsely aged, then transferred to tape in 1995, and therefore fake. Or are they? Or are they? I guess they are. I yeah, don't know. They are. They are. So that's fine. We know it's fake. Yeah. Santilli has since admitted that the entire film is a recreation. He won't say the word hoax. He says recreation. But mm-hmm. he also has said some of the original frames of an original autopsy film are still part of the recreation. They're part of Alien Autopsy, which, right. by the way, is a technical impossibility. And he's been unable to prove that in any way. But the point is... In the Library of Congress film that Santilli registered, the debris footage, digitally aged, is part of it. So Spiros explains this again, but it's a bit confusing, so I just wanted to uh, give you that precursor as well, because Mm -hmm. he also explains that the second tape that he had is all just flash frames. You get these when you start and stop film in a film camera, and they are great to use as transitions between shots, especially if you're trying to hoax something like this. They can cover up an edit. 
And Spiros makes the valid point that you could easily compare these flash frames on this 1995 tape to the alien autopsy. And if you lined up the right ones, you could prove that the frames on the tape that he still has, dated 1995, were probably used in the final alien autopsy film. Mm -hmm. Well, yeah. And if you're not familiar with that, you've probably seen that effect in a lot of music videos. It got way overused. Remember in the, yes. uh, in the eighties and nineties. Yeah. So people were using it uh, as kind of a fun effect. And also uh, remember the uh, 90210 intro where the, the frames were bouncing around at the beginning. Yes. That's from a telecine session. People right. usually don't see that because they cut that out, but it just, nobody knows. Everybody that. was saying, using that in the nineties. Yeah. Including yeah, me so in commercials. These were well used tricks and uh, to cover stuff and people were using them to make stuff look cool. But there's a couple of things I was thinking about because it, it really backs up to the beginning of the story here. And really, where did Spiros come in? Now, I know we talked about that in part one, but I think it'd be good to reiterate that here. And it also, like you said, with the characters and who did what, it really tells you the setup of the story because I was, I was starting to think about like, well, yes, okay, so Ray got the film from Spiros because as Spiros told it, at that point, he wanted to get rid of everything. The fewer people that had materials and film and alien foam body parts and sponge rubber and uh, and raspberry jam and, and, and all that kind of stuff, the fewer people that had access to it, the better the hoax was going to be preserved. So he gave it all to Ray. And as Scott just said, he ended up, though, with two transfer tapes. So I wanted to back up and ask him about the very beginning of basically the showing to the world, the start of this whole frenzy and the sensation here. Another comment, though, it's interesting, one of Scott's friends, Scott had asked him about, well, what did you think about the film when it came out? And do you remember the special? He's like, yeah, you know, and I I thought it was, you know, I was kind of jaded and and I felt it was going to be hokey because one, it was a Fox special and they were known for those kinds of things. And I thought, like, I'll go with that. That was kind of their thing. They were all fun to watch, but you were a little suspect, like I said before. It's not Nat Geo coming out with his stuff or uh, the Smithsonian Channel. It's Fox. So that comes already with some preconceived notions. And I think uh, Scott's friend said, like, well, yeah, why wouldn't you then take it to a showing with some journalists and ufologists and, and authorities and make a big splash saying like, look at what we got. What do you guys think? Well, that actually did happen. But as Americans, I think our first inkling of all this brouhaha was the Fox special. So I want to restate that point. The first public screening of this film occurred on May 5th, 1995, in a small theater at the Museum of London. And that's when Ray Santilli had invited the press, ufologists, clergy members, to all come and witness this in the audience. And then I started to think, wait, wait a second. Was Spiros there with John Humphreys? I'm not even sure. I couldn't remember if they were even in attendance. But basically, that was the first public showing. And you tell me, Scott, think about the turnaround in this. On August 28th of 1995, that same year, that's when the Fox television special Alien Autopsy Fact or Fiction aired. So that's a pretty quick turnaround. They had to go out and get those interviews, uh, put all that together. Yeah, well, you got to license it too, first to Fox. So on top of showing it, as they did, you know, in the UK, then you got to get out and uh, knock on doors and get the licensing out and say, hey, look, we have this. Then once that deal is closed, at that point, Fox has got to go out and produce it. And we, we do have an interesting letter 
uh, that we're going to read later from the director yes. of the Fox special. It did move pretty quickly because there's only uh, really three or four months there between when it was premiered in that setting you're talking about in the UK, which Americans we didn't really know about or hadn't heard about so much. Now with the internet, you probably would have heard about it quicker. But then it turned up on Fox at the end of August, like you said. As we said before, and as you'll see uh, in some of the media coverage, uh, it did go all over the world. The story was picked up, but I think it probably got brushed over here in the States. We get a lot of that kind of stuff, and it gets relegated to the Inquirer and uh, the Weekly World News. Right. Weird News of the Week. Weekly, Weekly Worldly News. That's where it ends up. It gets buried. People don't really pay attention to it. So I, my question to Spiros was, when you handed that film over to Ray, and I believe in tow uh, with Gary, because you had plans to release the film, and as I said, you want to get rid of everything, all the footage, all the props, so it would stay more secret. And then his plan was to gauge the reaction, produce a doc about it. Did they tell you that they were going to host a screening of it at the Museum of London? or anywhere else. Did you know about any kind of screening or were you even invited to the event? And if you were aware or not of this screening, was it yours and John's strategy to just keep quiet and see how it all unfolded for a while and, and kind of sit back and gauge the reaction that way? So this is what Spiros told us via Facebook Messenger. So these are his answers and he said it was okay to read these and paraphrase these. So Spiros says, John had nothing to do with the handing over to Ray. I was the only one who dealt with Ray. Gary was not visible or actively involved at that time. I didn't even regard him as Ray's partner. It was Ray who put on the screenings, and these happened without my knowledge. I had no idea that he was screening it anywhere. Although John was involved on my team, that's John Humphreys, he had no dealings with Ray at all. In fact, John didn't even meet Ray for the first time until the day of the filming when Ray turned up with Gareth. And no, we were not invited to the screenings. The last thing Santilli wanted was to risk us speaking to anyone. So the reality doesn't fit the new versions of reality that Ray invented. He needed John to say that he created the image of the alien from film he saw, but he and John hadn't even met until after the alien was made. And if I'm absolutely honest, I don't even remember Gary Shufield ever having been there at all. But I just don't remember if he was there when Ray brought Gareth or if it was just Ray and Gareth. I succumbed to the possibility that Gary may have been there because Gareth worked for Gary. But it's a bit hazy if he was there at all. Gary or Ray certainly were not in any of the film. They say they were, but they weren't. All right, so that, for me, answered some important questions about what went on and who knew what then. So another fun thing that people have kind of pointed us to is, and we've mentioned it, in 2006, a British comedy movie, a feature film, was made called Alien Autopsy. <laughs> and this is a, a comedic take on Ray's version of the story with a very popular television-presenting duo called Ant and Deck. So they're very well-known in the UK, two young gentlemen. And basically, it's yes, this comedy uh, was written by William Davies, or Davis, directed by Johnny Campbell, and it loosely details the shenanigans of everything that happened from the initial inception, what they get into, um, and how it unfolds and, and where it's left. So yes, it's meant to be a comedy, but there are some elements to it that do line up with actual events, and of course, told from Ray's point of view. Now, just to, so Americans here know who these folks are, because we could say Ant and Deck and that's not even a meaningful word, possibly, to right, a, lot of, right. <laughs> a lot of yanks here. Ant is 
Anthony, David, and McPartland. And then Deck is Declan, Joseph, Oliver, Deck, Donnelly. And they're both OBEs. Kind of, they, oh, yeah. Nice. Officers of the Order of the British Empire. They must be pretty funny. Uh, good for them. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> well, they're certainly well known. They just don't hand those out to everybody. Yeah. Uh, well, they're best known as a comedy presenting duo. They first started working together, I think, in the children drama series Biker Grove. You may know that if you're British. But in this case, in the movie, Deck plays the character representing Ray Santilli, and Ant portrays Ray's friend, Gary Shufield. And they're not TV producers in the comedy. They're more like bumbling and naive young guys who stumble into making the film. The setup is that Ray has a stall in the street market in their London neighborhood where he sells bootleg movies. And then he gets caught and he decides then, like, well, let's travel to Ohio because I've heard of some Elvis footage he could sell in his stall. And he drags his friend Gary along with him. Now, Scott, didn't you say you you had a project where you were looking for Elvis footage and you realized like that's pretty valuable stuff? The funny thing about this is, and this is the original story, according to Ray, about how the original alien autopsy footage was secured from the mysterious cameraman, was that they were in Cleveland looking for home footage of Elvis. And yes, I worked uh, for a time editing. There was a bus that was going to go around the country. It may still be out there. There was like a touring Elvis museum connected mm-hmm. to his estate. And there was footage that we used in that. And I realized in dealing with that footage, how hard it was to get anything of him, like nearly yeah. impossible. The estate doesn't release it. And if they do, it costs a fortune, which is why uh, if you watch any commercial where they refer to Elvis, like a record collection or whatever, you see the same three shots. The, the one black <laughs> and white shot where he twists and drops the mic and like yeah. two other ones. And that is it. You never see anything leg. else. Yeah. Yes. Remember, he, he moves his leg. Yeah. Yes, that was yeah. such fun. Yeah. Uh, but but that's the only one you see anymore. There's lots of footage, but it is under yeah. lock and key. So if you were to find some home movies, like, I don't know, technically, legally, the home movies might actually belong to the person that shot him. It would be a gold yeah. mine. So it makes sense that they uh, originally, that Ray in the real world actually maybe right. went to Cleveland because he heard rumors of somebody that had that, but maybe mm-hmm. that fell through. And then later... Uh, you know, there's some speculation as to whether or not that's when they dreamed up or somehow they came up with the idea to do the uh, fake autopsy. Yeah, that is. Which he says was inspired by a real film that they couldn't, as you know, from Spiros. Yeah. Yeah. Hi, I'm Taylor. And when I'm not... Information redacted. I'm listening to Astonishing Legends. Let's get back to the show. So if you watch the documentary, investigative documentary here, Eamon Investigates, uh, that is the story that Gary says that they they went on this trip. They really did go looking for Elvis footage. Yeah. And that Ray disappeared for a couple of days. Didn't tell him where he was going. Yeah. But he uh, he figures like, well, I'm, I'm, uh, I'm on vacation anyway. I'm on holiday. So I'll just enjoy myself. He comes back with this incredible uh, footage and some other stories, and that's how it starts off. But in the movie, in the comedy movie here, Harry Dean Stanton plays the army cameraman, who's the mysterious guy that sells him the footage, and they have to come up with uh, the money. And so, like I said, it, it does follow Ray's story in that they have to come up with the price that Harry Dean Stanton wants, and in the time between they they make the deal and they actually get the footage, well, it's ruined. Now what are they going to do? Because there's a, an investor who's a scary guy, and it's, just, uh, it's more the uh, comedic license here, uh, but that is uh, Laszlo Voros, who's this big, scary, kind of shady character who may hurt them. Uh, he's a huge UFO and crop circle nut, and he wants this footage. He will pay for it. But if they don't cough it up, he's going to hurt them. So that sparks the shooting of the recreation. So that part's a little made up, and it's for fun. 
Are you uh, going to tell? Uh, you're not going to tell the whole entire movie right now, are you? There's a reason I brought this all up because it is one. Uh, watch the movie; it's fun. The, the second reason is that it's important because what happened is that uh, uh, shortly before the release of this movie, that's when the Eamon Holmes Investigates documentary series aired in 2006, April 4th, I believe, and that is the point which Ray Santilli admits that it was a recreation. Right. Just to be clear, at that point, he yeah. admits it's a recreation, but he still insists that there was a real one and that it was based on what he had seen on the real one. And he still had a few frames of the real one. And on top of right. that, some of those frames were mixed in with the recreation. He said that was that. his claim yeah, that because was his he claim. was still holding on to that. Right. right. But really, of course, Eamon just thinks, I don't know about this. I think it's, well, he claims that and, and, and maybe it's fake. But I think, here's my point about it is if this movie had not been produced in 2006, the comedy, and also Eamon Investigates from the Sky Network, would it ever come out? Would Ray have ever said anything? Uh, but I think there's something you don't know here, and you might not remember from what Spiros told us. Ray had a part in Eamon Investigates. That was his uh -huh. story that he wanted to tell. Eamon Investigates was a, theoretically a series where he was going to investigate all kinds of things, you would think, by the name. There's only one. There's Eamon Investigates Alien <laughs> Autopsy. And what Spiros was saying was that the implication was, was that Ray was choosing how the story was told. And right. you'll hear about that tonight. But to your point, to your question yeah. about whether yeah. or not Eamon Investigates put him on the spot to put it out there, according to Spiros, Eamon Investigates was being controlled by Ray. So anything that Ray said in that was directly correlated to what he wanted to be heard. Aha, uh -huh. control the narrative. Exactly. But do you think that that was part then of the publicity machine that was happening around the release of this 2006 comedy? Well, yeah, according to Spiros, they came out the same week. The show came out the same week the movie released. So it seems like there's no question they were meant to go hand in hand. No, answer me this, though. Uh, as far as you know, between 2006 and 1995, was there any statement about it at all? Because for us, it went really silent. People go, I don't know, it looks kind of funny. I honestly don't know. I did not look into that. I don't think there was right. a lot going on. And then also to think about, uh, yeah, I don't know. It's a good question. Okay. And here's the other thing. Okay. Ray's story, I mean, who knows what the deal looked like, but he could have had points on the bottom line in the film. Mm -hmm. I don't know if he would have gotten them, honestly, to be the first time. But if he did... Then he goes out and does aim and investigates, and it hypes up the movie, and the movie makes more money. Then he makes more money right. in royalties on the back end. Okay. Here's the last thing I will That's say about That's pure speculation yeah. on my part. I have no of idea if any of well, that Well, we happened. love to do that, too. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> right. But, but here's the last thing I, I will say about the film, and it was kind of a curious little button at the end. So after the film is done, of course, uh, I think as the credits are rolling, there is a uh, an interview. You only see a couple of shots from an interview with Ray and Gary, uh, where they're just casually sitting there and they're kind of joking around. And I think they, they wanted some sound bites from them. And the, the second one is kind of curious because in that one, they're joking around and Gary says to the camera, whoever's interviewing them, he's, he's teasing Ray a little bit. He says, yeah, Ray here is, he's a good friend. I'm paraphrasing, of course, he's a good friend, but he will sell anything. He'll yeah. sell you anything. And then, uh, Ray kind of jokes, you know, he's kind of laughs a little bit. He said, no, come on, that's not true. And, uh, it's a curious thing to say. Indeed. All right, let's get back to Spiros here. We have just a few more segments with him to share with you guys to give you more depth around this story uh, before we share our final thoughts and conclusions. Uh, be warned, the word boobs does make an appearance in tonight's show, and, well, we decided that it was okay in context. 
But first, let's hear from him about those two tapes that Spiros still had in his possession. I gave Santilli everything. Everything, because I didn't want anyone else to have it, so they could spill the beans, so that we would then lose the deal, the deal right? Because we could make a lot of money from the documentary we were going to make and the whole thing. So I couldn't risk that. So I gave Santilli everything. We gave him the props. We got rid of all the bodies. We gave him the moulds. We gave him everything, all the film. But as, as luck would have it, two tapes got left behind. And those tapes are dated and stamped from the laboratory that I had them developed from that I wasn't supposed to have, but I found them in my archive. One of them is from the debris footage, which is completely unaged. And there's lots of outtakes on that tape that, that I didn't use. So that, that shows that, if nothing else, that all the debris are fake, right? But the other one I've got is only a reel of flashes. Just the, just the flashes, just one whole reel, right? And, and uh, I haven't done it yet, but if somebody wanted to, they could go through those flashes and marry them to the film. So they're dated 1995 from a lab, and they're not aged. So all the footage is clean. It's not like you see in the release footage, not like you see in the footage that's in the Library of Congress that Ray registered. It is of the debris footage, not of the alien. And that would have been a problem had I not had so much else on it. But what Ray did, bless him, he took the alien autopsy and he took the debris footage, he put them together and he registered the whole lot. So... We now have a discrepancy because we now know this part isn't 1947 film, it's fake. So why would you, as somebody who's paid a six-figure sum, he said, why would you have this amazing, monumental film, the most important film the world has ever seen, of a genuine alien? Why would you have that and then take this piece here and marry it together and devalue this film? Why would you do that? Why? Because you don't need to. One frame is invaluable if it's real. Invaluable. I mean, so the big problem now is that he's got this registered in a government institution as genuine. And then what he's done is he's taken this certification and he's extorted money from another American corporation based on this fraud. In legal terms, it's obtaining money by deception. This is a criminal act. By saying there is an original 1947 film within this film, what you've got left is, all right, well, we're going to slap your wrist because you were naughty. You told us it was all real. But the fact there's some real, like I said before, one frame of genuine film is the most monumental thing in the world, right? So that, if we've got that anyway, it's still monumental. And we're Fox TV, right? And we've sold this for millions of dollars around the globe. We can't really argue that we've lost any money. So what's our loss? Right? Another legal term is you have to mitigate your loss. You did this and it cost me that. If you can't mitigate your loss, there's no claim. Fox is not interested in suing Santilli or standing against Santilli. They've made a lot of money. And I made a mistake a long time ago. I was trying to sue Santilli. But Santilli has money. He can lean on that. He can tie you up legally. He can do all sorts of stuff. And I learned that the hard way. He actually fabricated a contract. Now, bear in mind, he was in my office day in, day out. He would be able to walk in. The receptions would buzz him in and let him through. And he would go up on his own to my office because we were working together daily. So he took a contract that we had, the confidentiality agreement that we signed. He took it out of my folder and he replaced it. 
I'm never going to look at it again. Why would I go to it, right? I then come to sue him and I say, well, I've got a confidentiality agreement. I don't even know. So I give it. And do you know what he did? He, he made it so that it could be false immediately. And what he did was Microsoft Word worked a certain way until a certain time. And when you have a date, you have a two and an ND for second, right? Word will automatically now make it smaller. It used to not do that. And he said, this was written afterwards. Look, that's what Word does. It was thrown out as if it was I'd created a fake document. Unbelievable, right? Planted the evidence. Long story short, I realized suing Santilli didn't serve me because his properties are in his wife's name and his son's name. Nothing in his name. So if, even if I won in a court of law, I'd get nothing back because he'd got no money. He's got, he's got nothing. And my lawyer turned around and he said to me, if I sold you a car that was stolen, do you know what would happen? I would vanish. I've got your money and you've got a stolen car. The guy that reports the car stolen wants his car back. And what would the police do? The police find you and you say, I bought the car and here's my receipt. And they say, doesn't count because this is a stolen car. We're going to take the car back and give it to the original owner. And you're going to chase the guy you gave the money to. That's how it's done. And he said, now what we've got here is we haven't got a car to take back. But Santilli took a stolen car, sold it to Fox. You're now going to come along and you're going to say to Fox, you paid the wrong guy. It's my film. You should be paying me. But we paid Santilli. Santilli didn't own it to sell it to you. So what you need to do now is you need to pay me and then you go to Santilli and get your money back. That's your problem. I have no relationship with Santilli stealing my film. My film's my film. He sold it to you and represented it as his. So that's how we do it. So we've been talking to a number of broadcasters around the world. Imagine this has gone around the world and every major broadcaster in the world has made a documentary on this, not once or twice, but three times some of them. And they keep making money. They keep regurgitating it. It's still on Netflix as we speak. The Fox program is on Netflix as we speak. So my position today is I'm not going to be greedy. I'm not going to say give me all the money. I'm going to say, you know what? Let's make more programs. You're in the business of broadcasting programs. I'm in the business of making programs. Put the money up. Let's make some more programs. We're win-win because I understand you've been duped. But you need to understand that you've been duped and accept it. So I'm doing deals now to do a feature film and to do a few specials. And what that will do is that will get me money for my film. But Santilli will then suddenly find himself in a bit of a problem because he's going to have to pay people back. And I'm happy to tell you guys this because I'm not, telling, I'm not saying anything untoward. I'm telling you the truth. And you know what? I'd love Mr. Santilli to sue me. I've just said some horrible things here. I've said some terrible things about him. You know what? If he was true, if it's true, I should be in a lot of trouble right now. I'm not hiding from anybody. Remember I said to you before, I hide from no one. I answer all questions. I'll meet anyone in court. So the only person that has an axe to grind now is Mrs. Antilly. So let's have a court day. Okay, so this is part of what makes Spiro so believable. He is ready to go to court. He is willing to go to court. He is throwing out that challenge pretty much anywhere and everywhere that he can speak. He's doing it on our show. He's like, I'll see you. I'll see you in court. Anybody wants to come to court and talk about this, you can't disprove my point about my involvement in this project. And I think that's interesting that he's saying that. Because you might remember in part one, he talked about the woman on his Facebook page who had said something like Santilli had given her rights to the footage. 
but Spiros was like, no, that's not, you can't do that. And then she threatened to go to court and, or do a rights claim. No, it was a YouTube claim. And then there was, mm-hmm. when it got to the point where uh, Santilli needed to get involved and back her up, he backed down because Spiros is holding all the cards. So that's what's interesting. <laughs> Ooh, nice in terms of magician proof. Yes, holding yeah. all the cards. All <laughs> right, so we got this next segment coming up. Um, and this is all about destroying the evidence, but also just like not having any photos, not nothing. He was very careful to make sure there weren't things out there that could lead back to this. This is a guy you might actually want in a military operation because he's really <laughs> covering all the bases here. And one of the clips that Spiros had sent us of stuff to watch, it might have been the Aim and Investigates program, I think, which Santilli had a hand in, as we said uh, earlier. To further confuse things, you can see briefly these three Polaroids that look like work in progress on the alien body, but they only showed them for a second in that show, and they didn't really say anything about them. So we wanted to find out more about that, and I can't remember if it was that show or if that was in the BBC One show. We had a lot of footage. We have links to all of it, so you can watch it all in our show notes. But we did ask Spiros about this. I said to my crew, no photos. John didn't listen. Now, when he sculpted the body, it was done in another studio. It's called Murphy's. There was no reason to do it secretly there because nothing to see. He had to mold his young son, Michael. Michael was 10 years old at the time. And because his mother's side of the family, all over six foot tall, he was five foot tall, age 10. So he was a right size for us and skinny. John, first of all, molded him. And then if you know anything about sculpture, if you know about special effects, what you do is you start with a base. So you create the body in plaster, which is, Michael's body, except for the feet, because you're going to meet, you have to sculpt six toes, except for the hands, and except for the head. You just need the torso. And all of that torso, the bulk, would have been clay. And clay dries up and cracks. And, you know, so you don't want a big, vast amount of clay. You want to add clay to that body. So what he did was he added clay to Michael's base plaster body to build the alien body. Up until the point where he's molded Michael, made Michael's body, nothing to worry about, nothing secret, right? He then had sculpted the alien body on top of the plaster. That's when it was transferred from Murphy's to the house we were going to film in. He took photos of Michael being molded in the same position. I couldn't hardly tell. I mean, you know, they show it very briefly there, and they're Polaroids, so the detail's not great, but yeah. But I've got the stills. I'll give you the stills. They're they're very, you you see exactly what it is. You can see Michael is in the same position as the alien, lying down like that, covered in the mold and laughing. And Michael is now 30-something, 30 years old, I think, you know. At the time, he was, you know, 10 years old. So Michael now dines out on the fact that he's the alien. So the next thing that happened was, the plaster casters moved to the house and John then laid clay on top of the plaster to make the new shape because it's bigger than the base, right? The skinny arms of Michael became muscular arms. So he just added the muscles on. So once he'd done that, John also took a picture of the clay on the slab in the same position as Michael. And he shouldn't have done. And I was furious at him and I'm so pleased he did it, right? Because I wouldn't have it today. But he wasn't supposed to do that. And he never showed anyone until it got to the Eamon Holmes program. Man, I love this kid. (laughs) Did he know John Humphrey's son we're talking about? Did he know when he did this, when dad had him do some crazy thing, that he was arguably 
going to be one of those famous models for a special effect alien of all time. I know, that's crazy. Think about how many people have seen him or a version of him. I know, I'm sure Dissected. it was just fun. Well, it's, <laughs> yeah, it's very tedious. You gotta, you gotta lay there for a long time as anybody who's done uh, like a, a life mask or anything like that, or you, you see an actor talking about their special effects uh, process in the makeup chair at four in the morning and it takes you know four or five hours. It's very tedious, but he looks like he's having fun in the photo, which is, is what I love. He's He's, he's a good sport about it. But if you think about it, his character is possibly even more famous because, you know, unlike the alien um, in Alien and the, the xenomorph I'm talking about yes, in Alien, yes. the alien autopsy wasn't just seen by sci-fi horror fans. It was seen by anyone who wonders if we're alone in the universe. Yeah, because you think, oh, everybody knows the xenomorph. And maybe you have, even if you didn't see Alien, the movie. Yeah. You might know what that is, but Alien Autopsy was watched by everybody who thought they had to check it out. They didn't weren't necessarily sci-fi people. There, it was a broad right. swath of global culture. So, yeah, I, I, th- I thought it was funny when Spiro says, "Oh yeah, he's dining out on that. He he was the alien <laughs> in Alien Autopsy. That's a pretty great claim to fame." Either you'd have to stage that photo to show a kid uh, posing for at least the torso of that, and then the head was a separate sculpture. Yes. but it looks pretty vintage to me. Yeah. Well, in another case of Spiro's throwing down the gauntlet, in this section coming up, you're going to hear him talking about uh, trying to set up a really rigorous lie detector test in a face-off with Ray Santilli. You would think that Ray, if his side of the story is true, he's going to you know, show up for that. He's going to be into that, but it seems like that falls away. This is the section that talks a little bit about the Eamon Investigates uh, that we mentioned earlier before the uh, first segment. Um, Eamon Holmes, by the way, who he's a Northern Irish journalist and prolific broadcaster, and he made uh, this series, Eamon Investigates the Alien Autopsy. By the way, that credit curiously does not appear on his Wikipedia page. <laughs> I don't know mm. if he's trying to forget it mm. because mm. at this point there's so much controversy <laughs> about this. But when you watch right. it, you get the impression, like I said earlier, it's a show he does all the time looking into all sorts of mysteries because right? he talks about, I am an investigative reporter, which I'm sure mm-hmm. you know he obviously is. But yeah. this is the only one of these he ever made. And hmm. to hear Spiros tell it, Ray was heavily involved in how it was produced and what was covered. That's too bad. I, I, I enjoyed watching uh, the four parts of it. Oh, I did too. Uh, it was but, kind of fascinating. But yeah. again, this Eamon Investigates the Alien Autopsy, it was edited by Gareth Watson. Gareth was the guy who worked for Ray and Gary Shufield. He's listed mm-hmm. as the editor. Although maybe maybe that credit was just for the alien autopsy portion. It occurs to me now that it could be that. So mm. I probably am painting with too broad a brush there. But still, uh, Gareth <laughs> was also the guy behind the window in the autopsy footage. Right. This is also interesting because in the Eamon Investigates piece, he actually interviews John Humphreys in it. And you'll hear Spiros talking about that a little bit because he feels like John is being made to lie. And it's obvious that John's uncomfortable in it. And you're going to find out why here uh, from Spiros. And we also asked Spiros, what's going on with the whole Library of Congress thing? Has he made it clear to them that they had allowed someone to misrepresent the registration of a film by lying about when it was made by almost 50 years and also the fact that it was a hoax? The Eamon's Holmes programme seems legit, but Eamon Holmes never made another programme called Eamon Investigates Anything. He was brought in to make this one programme by Santilli and Shufield. They paid for that programme. This is what they did. They said to Eamon Holmes, and I know this because I phoned Eamon, Eamon, we want you to say it's not real. We want you to act like you're you're trying to uncover the truth. And I want you to ask us difficult questions. And that's what he does. Yeah, guys, you know, well, what about this? 
and they've got all the answers, of course, right? At one point, there is a scene where John Humphreys is sitting on a chair in a kind of a, a warehousey kind of situation, and he's very uncomfortable. He looks very uncomfortable because he's been asked to lie. And he's sitting there trying not to show it. He's very nervous. And he, John didn't know that Eamon is in on it. Eamon is in on the interrogation, right? He's been told to do this. But John thought, oh, this guy's going to catch us out. And he was, he was acting like he, was, he had something to hide. So that whole thing was released the week of the film being released. The timing was perfect. And what it did, it set up a new concept, which was there is original film, and it's only a few frames, and they're in the film. That was the first time that story came out. So that documentary set it up. And the film secured it. Are you just at a standstill with the Library of Congress in terms of establishing that what he's registered there is, is, I mean, even with those pictures of Michael? Library of Congress has said to me, they are reactive. They're not proactive. You can go along and register anything. And if it's fake, then the person that you've wronged needs to take you to task. Go back to them and say, there's the proof now react. They are not going to be proactive in proving it not being fake. I came along and I said, this is fake. It's mine. Here's my evidence. And this went 10 months. Bear in mind, I'm in the UK, back and forth, back and forth for 10 months. And eventually they said, okay, we can see you've got enough here to register it. I said, well, what about the one you've got registered that isn't real? And they said, well, we're not proactive so we're not going to sue him we're not going to chase him it's for you to do that and then we will react to whatever the court says for you i didn't have the money to chase and do all that stuff it's quite a laborious thing and santilli is already a very litigious person he knows the loopholes he knows how to tie people up he knows how to play the waiting game so there's nobody's going to win out of this but him so i did what i could in as much as to build up a case And one thing that I did was I went to a newspaper that ran a story to say that Santilli has got original film but has revealed that it was fake. So I then went forward and I said, okay, now that you know that it was fake and what I told you is true because he's accepted that, puts me back in the frame. You know, he, he actually denied I was even involved early on. Slowly, slowly, you knock the pins down one by one, right? And I said to the newspaper, here's an idea. Why don't we do a lie detector test with you? Now, not any old lie detector test. Let's do a three-phase lie detector test, which is wire up to the brain activity, wire up to the sweat glands, and wire up to the pulse. So you've got these three things you've got to beat. You can beat a lie detector test, the old ones, because all you had to do is control that you lied in a consistent manner that you would say the truth. You passed but you don't stop sweating and, you don't st- and your, your, your brain activity and your heart rate and the sweat glands are all independent and you can't control them. So I said, if you do a three-phase lie detector test and the winner owns the footage with you, so if I was correct and he'd lied, I own the footage with you. And if he's telling the truth, he owns the footage with you. The fee that you're going to pay for this story 
goes to the only person telling the truth. The other one doesn't get a penny. And you get the exclusive to run in your newspaper that this happened and what the results were. They said, what a great idea. I said, here's where it's going to fall down. I'm doing it. I want to do it. I've suggested it. Santilli will not agree. That's where it's going to fall down. And they said, oh, no, no, he's, he's adamant that he's, you know, sure enough. They went to, and it's on my website. You can see all the newspaper clippings and you can see all the, the story. They went to Santilli and Santilli does what Santilli does always, which is that whole thing that I said to you. Can I make a woman f- jump out the f- window and fly? Yeah. I don't know how I'm going to do it, but I, I'll do it, right? You don't want to hear me say, no, I can't because I don't get the gig, right? I want You want to hear that I can do it. So what Ray does is he says, yeah, sure, let's do a lie detector test. Let's just work out a time when we can all do it, and we'll do it. Ray contacted me and said, we should share the pot. So whatever the fee is, we should share that, and we should share the footage afterwards, and everybody do it together, share it. Ray, why would I want to reward you? I said, if you're right, you get it all. right? And if you're wrong, you get, it, you get nothing. I don't want to reward you. I don't trust you. I don't even like you anymore. So why, why, are you, why would I want to do that? Oh, well, I don't want to do it. You said you'd do it. Just do it. You're right. You'll, get, you'll win the money, and that's the end of it, right? You don't need to share it. So he went quiet. So I get hold of the editor of the newspaper, and I said, what's happened? He said he'll do it. It's three months now. How long do we give him before you write a story to say, we offered him Mrs. Santilli, and the only one that turned up was Spiros? At what point do you write this story? Well, let's give him a bit more time. Let's see what it is. Anyway, a year later, I wrote to them again, and I said, look, it's been a year. How long? Uh, he said he's busy. and he's, uh, Anyway, he's, he never did it. So that's on the record. And I'm happy to do it still. Where I'm not happy to do it, and let's make sure that no people don't, under, don't misunderstand what I'm saying, I'm on a hiding to nowhere here. If I did the test on my own, he's a magician. He's trained. He can beat the system. And that doesn't mean anything. So that's no good to me, right? Just to beat a lie detector test because if I do it because I'm it's three for three phase lie detector, yeah, but he's clever, and that's it, right? So I can't win wherever. I, but if I've got Santilli here and me here, if I win and he loses, it's not because I'm special. He's lying, so it's important to do that. So I would want more than want me Ray at the very least, but I would also want John Humphreys and Greg. I want all, all to do it, because you know what? John Humphreys won't do it, but Greg will do it. Greg's got nothing to hide. How did Ray uh, Santilli and, and Greg, and, uh, and how did Gary Shufield come into the picture? I knew Gary Shufield at the beginning just as a friend, as somebody that would have dinner with us. And, you know, but I didn't know what Gary, what involvement he had with Ray. I had no idea that Gary was even involved in the alien autopsy. None at all. The first time I realized that he was in the loop was the day of filming. Ray brought Gary and Gareth to the set. I said, Ray, what are you doing? This is top secret, right? For our listeners, I just want to quickly say Gary being the other producer and Gareth is the gentleman who played the guy behind the window, right? That's right. I didn't have any plan to have someone outside of my crew behind that window. And all of a sudden I've got this guy who's not only here, he's in the mix now. So I said, Ray, what are you doing? And he said, oh, no, he's okay. He's a very good friend. He won't do anything. He's, he works with us. He's very reliable. 
I said, but you're asking me to keep the secrecy and I've now got a loose cannon. I can't control this guy and I'm the one responsible for keeping it secret. You put me in an untenable position. He said, no, no, he's fine, he's fine. I'll take responsibility for him. So I said, what's he here for? He said, he can be the guy behind the window. So I had to reluctantly put this guy, put a a coat on him, mask him up, do the whole thing, and put him behind the window, right? And the whole time I'm furious because I... Never, you know, I didn't know Gareth at all at that time. I met him afterwards, but I knew him, right? But I didn't know him there at all. Gary Shufield was there as well. What's he doing here? You know, oh, he's, he's going to help us sell it afterwards. So he's in the mix as well. Okay. So there was a de- very definite my team and Ray's team. Everyone on my team made the film and every aspect of the film. Everybody on Ray's team marketed and sold the film. That's it. None of these people had anything to do with the making of the film. All right. So as we go along here, the painting is filling in about who did what on the alien autopsy film and and who didn't do anything or, you know, what they did was kind of that old story about the artist uh, creates something amazing and then someone else swoops in and profits from it. And yes. then the artist, uh, you know, doesn't get any credit at all. And th- when we were talking about similarities to the Patterson-Gimlin film, the parts of the story that were very curiously oh, similar right. to me were uh, had to do with the distribution of the film and who got cut in and who got out, cut out. And, you know, even though I don't believe the Patterson-Gimlin film is a hoax, what's interesting to me when you look at that is that Bob Gimlin got really cut out of anything relating to it, even though he is the one that was there. He was left out of this process of distribution by people with very similar personality types to Ray Santilli. And remember the brother-in-law who owned the asphalt company. Yes, exactly. I'm blanking on his name, but yeah, he's yeah. the he's the he's the showman, the wheeler dealer type. It's like, hey, I bet I can do something with this, right? And that's what happens when these things come along. It's all these different components and moving parts that uh, that appear out of the woodwork when the artist makes something that seems like it's a viable product. Hey, this is Sean Nelson, deep in the Louisiana swamp. Hi, I'm Nick Kolderski. And while I'm out here looking for the Rougarou... And when I'm not watching Critical Role, a show where a bunch of voice actors sit around and play Dungeons & Dragons... I love I'm listening, listening to, to Astonishing, Astonishing Legends. Legends. Wait, I think I see something. Now back to the show. In this next section, we're going to hear a little bit more about the mysterious German investor, Volker Spielberg. <laughs> and uh, mm-hmm. we're, you're also going to hear us talk a little bit about the Warner Brothers movie, the Alien Autopsy movie with Ant and Deck that we talked about earlier. When they made the Anton Deck film with Warner Brothers, QWERTY Productions with Warner Brothers, what they did was they made it the Gary and Ray show. So Gary and Ray played bigger roles in the creation of the film, in the film, than they did in real life. Gary Shufield has gone public recently and said, he's named me as the guy that made the film, but he said there were real film frames. And then somebody said to him, Who's in the suits? And going along with the story in the Anton Deck film, Gary slipped up and he said, well, sometimes it's me and sometimes it's Ray, which is great for me because they were never in those suits, right? So all you've got to do now is look at the heights of the people. John is five foot six. Gary Shufield is five foot 10, maybe 11, 12, you know, six foot. Ray is shorter, but John's the one doing the autopsy. And here's the good bit. 
The only tall one in there is my ex-girlfriend. You can see her boobs. So it's not Gary or Ray. Now, there's only one other person that walks in, and you only get the back of the person, and it's um, Greg, but it's a fleeting thing. I just wanted to have another body in the shop. So later, people say, oh, there's lots of people, right? It's a big production. But it can't be a production. It must be real, right? He literally walked in, just saw the back of him, and walked out again. So sometimes it's me, sometimes it's Ray, is a great line because they're not in it at all. So I would love to see where it's him and where it isn't him. They can show us, right? They can, they can say, oh, this is me here, and I can show them why it isn't them because I know things. And it has to be John doing the autopsy because he created it and he knows what to do, how to get it to perform. That's right. This gentleman, Volker, uh, Spielberg, I think you said? Yes. He financed, he, initially, that other half of that money. How did, how did Ray know him? And I mean, I would guess that's the guy when Ray says, oh, my, the real footage is over here with the guy in Germany. That's who he's implying, even though he doesn't say his name. Volker is a video master rights businessman. He buys people's programs, puts them onto DVD, puts them onto television. He, he regurgitates things and cuts them about and makes a new program from them, which is what Ray does. So when you say, how did they know each other? Well, they know each other from their business. They bought and sold each other's materials. So Volker would sell him a gig shot in Nashville, and then Ray would then put it out on DVD in England, okay, or whatever. So they own the master rights to various things. I've met Volker a couple of times. I went to his house when he lived in Germany, and I met him also in Switzerland where he moved. And at one point he had a bar in, in Spain. Volker said to me, oh, this is going to be so much fun. After we finish with the alien, I'll put it in the bar, my bar in Marbella, right? And I thought, I've got to make an extra body because I'm going to cut this one to pieces. So I'm thinking, you know, this guy wants another body. So afterwards, I said to Ray, Ray, he wants to put the body in his bar in after we finished. Like, What's that about? And he said, oh, don't listen to him. You won't need to make another, but don't listen to him. And Volker took a very, very a backseat role, never got involved. And subsequently, he and I did business in the future. I did programs and stuff that I sold him and he sold me. And we did very much the same sort of stuff. But um, the question of whether or not Ray made any money or paid Volker back or any of that, I was never party to any of those things. So I don't know whether or not Volker's happy. I've lost contact with him, but I'm not, I don't know if Volker got his money back. I don't know whether he's wealthy enough to just swallow the money and forget it. I never had any dealings with selling the footage. So all the people that bought it didn't give me a bean. And I never, I never saw a penny of it. So all those deals are slowly coming out because when I go to you and I say, you use my film and I want you to pay for it, for it you say to me, but I already paid for it. I said, well, show me your contract. And that's when I find out. That's how I find out. So I don't know anything. I don't know who he's been talking to. All I do know is 1.2 billion people around the globe have seen this image. I know it's been on every TV uh, broadcast platform in the world. I know that it's been in every magazine and every newspaper at one point. It's been on Time magazine. <laughs> it's been everywhere. So I don't know who these people were talking to, but there were two people that were selling the film, and that's Gary Shufield and another guy called Chris Carey. Chris Carey is, a, is an American guy. Interestingly, never 
have I ever discussed alien autopsy with Chris Carey, although he was involved? Because I didn't know if he knew I was involved. I didn't know what the story was, right? But he and I never discussed it, but I knew he was involved because Ray was working with him on that. And he's the one that took the film to America and showed it and sold it and, and what have you. You know, when you tell a lie, you cover it with another lie. And before you know it, you've told 10 lies and then you say something which is true, but the lie covers it. And the lie is the reason why the truth sticks out. Well, the story that Ray told the media about where he bought this film was a cameraman who worked for the military as a cameraman, and he's the one who sold him the film. That's one lie that he could have got away with. But then he embellished the lie. He told another lie, which is, oh, yeah, I visited his home. I met his wife. I saw his memorabilia on the walls and it told me, that, yeah, I know who he was. He took me to the basement of his house and he showed me the film on a projector. Okay, so what do we know now? We know that the guy was married, he has a, has a wife that was alive in, in 92, 3, 4, 5, okay? He also said he sold the film for a six-figure sum. How do you get six figures of money from England to America in cash? How do you do that? First of all, if you did it, and let's say you got away with it, okay, what did the guy say he used the money for? He said he wanted to pay for his niece's wedding. Later, another person in the mix said it was his daughter's wedding. Gary Shufield said it was his, uh, it was his niece, the daughter, and it was somebody else, the third one, sister. I can't remember now, but it was a different person. So the story changed three times, but let's take all of them as real, okay? He must have a niece who got married on or before between 94 and 96, 97. You know, let's give it a good window. So let's find this cameraman. He used to work for the military. This is on record, all of this is on record. He had polio as a child, which means that he was pretty, he stood out, you know, he couldn't walk straight because he had polio, he had weak legs. And that's why he was in the military as a cameraman, because that's what he did well. Not because he was physically fit to be a soldier. So polio as a child is a big deal. That must be on his record. Married, and he also said he had a son. And we know he's got a son because we did a filmed interview with the cameraman, and the film was delivered by his son to Fox. So Fox met somebody who delivered this film. So if the lies are true, then the cameraman has a son who must be around 60 years old today. He has a, a niece or a daughter or a sister who got married at that time. And he has to have been filming the White Sands bomb explosion tests from the air. That's what he told people. So this is a very specific person we're talking about. So they said, we found the cameraman. The guy's called Jack Barrett or Jack Barnett. Well, it's a very simple thing, you know. Check out Jack Barrett or Jack Barnett. Find out where he lived. Did he have a basement? Did he have a wife? Has he got a son? Did somebody get married around this time? Very easy to find this guy. Did he have polio as a child, right? Let's narrow this guy down. But these, all these things are lies. And they don't apply to anybody. They don't apply to a person. This person's fictitious. We can't find the cameraman. He doesn't exist. Well, why not? He's dead now. He must be dead now. 
So what, what's the problem of telling us who he is, right? He's, he's dead now. His wife's got to be dead as well. You know, you wanted to be secret. Well, no reason for it now. Still not going to happen. So there is no cameraman. There is no real film. There is no, you know, the reality. That's the reality. If somebody took this on as a serious investigation, all the things I just told you would be the first things they did. Right. So it's pretty obvious this mysterious cameraman does not exist. The dude is fictitious. I mean, look, we found a member of the Beth's Fear family living under a different name. We know what a search like this looks like. This dude isn't real. He's not real. Uh, uh Maybe there's a cameraman out there somewhere who shot an alien autopsy, but I don't think he ever crossed paths with Ray Santilli based on what Ray is saying about this dude. So, And when you watch everything, when you watch fact or fiction and you watch all the other clips that we have the Amon investigates even though Santilli was involved in that you watch the BBC one piece and you put it all together and you hear what people involved in all these productions have to say you just don't think the cameraman existed which means the film didn't exist or if it did it certainly didn't cross paths by way of the imaginary cameraman folks we're going to be making comparisons to the pgf because again a lot of things line up and there's a lot of things that diverge and uh, i find it interesting in that somewhere the original patterson gimlin film exists or maybe it got thrown away we don't know could be in a shoebox we yes. talked about this before but everything that people are seeing keep in mind that's a copy of that film so somewhere there's an original film and What I'm willing to hold out the possibility of is that maybe there is some media evidence in film and photographs and possibly audio recordings of some kind of autopsy somewhere, and it's in that giant warehouse where the Ark of the Covenant is kept. That's the (laughs) running joke, is that (laughs) it's in crates somewhere, possibly many levels down underground, but stored. So what I can guarantee is that if something like that really did take place, yeah, they're going to document it. As I told you, that was my dad's job in the Army. Anytime they brought out or tested anything or showed anything, somebody was there to record it with photographs and film. Right. So if that happened, there's some footage out there. Is it this? Probably not. No, but that's a good point. That's a military protocol. You keep every kind of record you can of what happened here and not just written records but also photographic evidence and why not film evidence if you have that at your disposal well they would have made it happen that, that's kind of my point there's probably some guy on base i would guess that that that's another part of the story is that they're not going to fly the guy in to do this i'm sure there was somebody especially since they uh roswell you know apparently they had a publicity office Oh, yeah, the 509th. Yeah, so uh, of course there's people who could take photographs there. That was usually the case. In this case, this is a big deal. They're not just going to go grab some guy off the, hey, you got a camera? Come on over here with your Instamatic and, uh, you know, your brownie camera and and photograph this stuff. If there is recovered bodies, there's going to be a lot of care that goes with this and a ton of secrecy. Yeah, that's what my point was about me seeing it the first time as well. It's like, I think these films would be somewhere else. And if if they did surface, it's a weirder, wilder story than that. Coming up in this next segment, you're going to hear us talk a little bit more about the Amon Investigates piece and the bombshell that we mentioned earlier of Santilli saying, you know what, this is a recreation. Never saying the word hoax, but saying it's a recreation. But not only that, he's saying it in a show that he maybe had a part in producing. We don't know that for sure, but that's what Spiro said or seems to think. 
So he said that it's a recreation and that it was based on a real film that he had seen years ago, but that it deteriorated so badly he could no longer exhibit it. However, he had poured it over some of the original frames. And this is an impossibility for a variety of reasons, but you're going to hear us talking about it. Me and Spiro's kind of geeking out a little bit in a post-production way about not being able to splice handheld frames from an original film in 1947 into a recreation, in air quotes, made in 1995 and have them match up in any kind of way at all. It would have to be a full roll or nothing, and it would be technically impossible. So you're going to hear us talking about that here coming up. You also would have had, probably had to have at your disposal a what's called a motion control rig. And that is a really, really expensive proposition which I'm not sure if that was around in 95. I feel like any commercials that I came across that used them were in the 2000s, but I can't say that for sure. But it's incredibly expensive computer-controlled camera rig that can create exactly identical camera movements over multiple takes. So it has uh, tracks and servos for focus pulling and panning and pretty much everything. So what you do is you program all the actions that the camera is going to take in a shot. And the reason you use one of these is if you're trying to do a complex special effects shot, and you need to shoot it several times because you can't do everything you want in the shot in one take. Maybe in the first take, a car blows up, and in the second one, a building Mm -hmm. collapses. We're talking Michael Bay here. So if you use one of these, it's the moving equivalent of having a still camera locked on a tripod, which everyone knows is easy to composite different things together with. So with the motion control, you get the whole enchilada. One of these rigs is the only way possible you could even remotely consider using some frames from a deteriorated 1947 alien autopsy film in conjunction with ones in a new one But even that is ludicrous because you wouldn't be able to reconstruct whatever the handheld camera operator did back in 1947. It just doesn't make sense. So the whole argument's kind of stupid, but we left it in there anyway. Plus the film (laughs) wouldn't match. The lenses wouldn't match. It's beyond impossible, but that doesn't stop me from pontificating about it with Spiros. Oh, and by the way, you're going to have to pay like $50,000 a day to use a motion control rig. And uh, those are 1995 prices. It doesn't make sense. You just can't mix frames from a 50-year-old handheld film with a recreation of it and not see the difference unless it is a full-blown locked off shot with the same camera, the same lens in the same exact place and nothing had changed. It just doesn't make sense. You might be able to pull that off nowadays. They can do so much with uh, digital recreation. Well, yeah, with CGI, but still, With uh, some kind of optical thing. But I do know a guy, I will say that, uh, yes, motion control did exist in in 95. I know a guy that uh, that's what he did uh, around that time in the early 90s. It was a specialty, and you would go to a set, and he'd have, uh, like, you know, six cases of track and uh, motors and servos and stuff, and that's what he would set up. Yes. But it was a specialty shot. So, again, you just didn't order that on Amazon or go down to Circuit City to pick that up. That's a very specialty profession, and you have to have perfect registration. So when you see those green screen shots and you see those little uh, crosses and people have ping pong balls on them, that's lining up the shot so you can match stuff perfectly because it's going to be photographed in different stages. But yeah, so what Scott's talking about is that back then, 95, no. Uh, i very doubtful you could pull that off, even with an army of special effects uh, artists. Well, we asked Spiros what he thought Santilli meant when he said there were some frames from the original film that had disintegrated mixed into the final recreation or the recreated alien autopsy footage. What he's saying is that Well, there is a kernel of truth here in this uh, recreated autopsy in that there are frames, at least, or um, 
maybe even small segments of, of original film that has been spliced into what you folks had created. But as we all three of us know, having worked in film and, and, uh, and video, one or two frames even, or, or five frames or 10 frames, as you said, it, it goes by very fast, so 30 frames per second, that small amount spliced into another film is going to jump visually. You will see it, and uh, it'll, be very, it'll be startling, even if it's a few frames, even if you have a, a whole shot, like you coming around the side and, and that's real, that's not going to match. So that whole argument seems to be a little shaky. They haven't thought beyond what's real and what isn't, right? Because it's a big fictitious thing now, just plow it all up and, and you know what? It'll just wash by until someone starts to look at it closely, right? When you start to look at it closely, the only thing that can be in this film, if it was real film, I'm telling you it isn't, right? But if we're going to go down that road, the only thing that they can put in there that would not stick out would be flashes of nothing. Because if you put a shot of the alien's head or the leg or whatever, it would flash up and jar because nothing else matches with it. If you consider how difficult it is to marry a shot on the fly, you've got a camera which is now moving on every axis and every possible level to get a leg to line up with an original piece of film and film it handheld so that it marries is impossible. If you had a control rig, just because people listening now will say, ah, it's possible, they could have had a rig and they could have had... No, let's qualify it. You would only be able to marry up a shot you've already shot, not a shot you were given. You shoot the shot and then you would shoot it again and then these two shots will marry because the camera's moving at the same speed in the same direction in exactly the same trajectory as the previous shot. But if I've got a loose shot here that I didn't have anything to do with and I now have to replicate it, the amount of movement that I have to replicate on that camera and the speed and the whole thing, do you know what? It can't be done. And I'll go back to something I told you before, which was equally, if you have a shot which doesn't cut at the front end here and it's a close-up of the head, and it carries on moving and tracking, and it carries on moving, and now you see the whole body, and you then say, oh, the end shot is the real shot. It can't be. That whole one continuous shot belongs to itself. So if you take the head on its own, if it had a table in the middle, it's not a real head. So, so yeah, there's, it's, it's too much. It's too much. All right, coming back around to the idea that a lot of people say, oh, I knew that was fake. How'd you know it was mm -hmm. fake? Oh, well, it was clearly tabloid news, or it had to be. It's too sensational. It was on Fox. It's not a real creature because of X, Y, Z. The objects in the mm -hmm. room aren't right for the time. Oh, I can tell it was shot in England. I can tell those aren't real pathologists. But here's the thing. Nobody could say that. All they could say is, it's not real. I just know it's not real. <laughs> so right. that probably was the heaviest lift that Spiros did. Even if people were doubtful of its veracity, he didn't leave anything in there that would allow you to see that crack in the curtain that allowed you to peek through yeah. and see what was going on because he was so meticulous and careful about it. He removed that opportunity for you to say, oh, well, look at that outlet. This can't be Roswell. Right. That's a European outlet in the wall. Oh, this yeah. can't be 1947. That clock's from 1973. Yeah, that's what I said in part one. He, he, he's trying to make a sale here. He's trying to sell you on this. And the good route to any sale, remove the buyer's objections. Remove them all. My favorite case in point with the automotive sales industry, which I, I work for on the media events side, 
is uh, remember um, Hyundai automobiles back in the day with the XL. Not the most reliable car when they came to the U.S. here. Right. So they were breaking down. So they did an ingenious thing. It's like, well, I don't want to buy a Hyundai Excel or any Hyundai. It's like, I hear they break down a lot. Like, okay, I tell you what. How about we have a 10-year warranty? We'll fix the car for you for the next 10 years if anything happens. How about that? It's like, oh, okay, well. It wasn't just 10 years. I believe it was 10 years and 100,000 miles. And 100,000 miles. Yeah. And guess what? After that, everybody else had to follow suit. Like, oh my God, they're doing it. Because people love that. It's like, well, you removed my objection. That was it. I just, you know, I want a uh, affordable car. doesn't have to be much, but I don't want it breaking down. And if you say you're going to keep uh, repairing it, well, okay, I'll consider it. So here, there's nothing anachronistic that you see in the film. If you saw something in the film that didn't jive with you, well, that's your gut feeling, not that you didn't or didn't know what an autopsy room was supposed to be like. And that's my point. It's like, well, it didn't look right to me. Like I would figure uh, it would be different, fancier, more complex, this and that. But you got to remember, this goes for myself too, what we know about those things are what we get from the movies usually. <laughs> And in the movies, things are, you know, look, these set designers and uh, costumers and all the people that work on the film, they're the top of their profession. They're artists, every single one of them. And it always looks more grandiose than probably what real history was. That includes the Old West, ancient temples you see. It's going to be bigger and better than what the real thing was. So you have to keep that in mind too. But, you know, really why that worked is that, yeah, he, he tried to think of every possible thing that might give it away uh, from the phone on the wall to the outlets, as you say, to the, uh, the Hertz frequency, uh, the power flicker. I, I think in, uh, you know what, on a camera setting, I think you have a choice, uh, at least on video cameras, of a 50 hertz or 60 hertz cycle. Well, yeah, the other thing here he was dealing with, and it's not something that I guess most people know, but it's a different uh, television system in Europe versus the US. It's PAL yeah. versus NTSC. And he's trying to create something that is going to look NTSC in an entirely PAL world. And that's a PAL frequency. So yes, there's a difference between 50 hertz and 60 hertz in the wall sockets and the fluorescent lights, which the flicker would have been off if he didn't match the flicker in the fluorescent lights to the NTSC cameras. If yeah. he had been using video cameras. Here's the other thing is that the power, the, the frequency cycle of power in England is 50 hertz versus 60 hertz mm -hmm. in the U.S. Right. But he right. needs this film to look like it was shot in the United States. So he is syncing the fluorescent lights to a 60 hertz cycle. Yeah. Just in case anyone tries to count the flicker of the fluorescent lights on the film and determine that it was 60 hertz. Because if they saw that it was 50, then they could be like, oh, this was shot overseas. This wasn't made in the United States. This might look like yeah. the U.S., yeah. but it's not. He, that's, well, so that's every detail. He's removing all of those possible weak links in the chain. To reiterate the point, no expert at the time could come out and say, no, no, totally a fake just from what I know professionally. Right. And, and yes, uh, as we've talked about before, some of the opinions that you saw on alien autopsy fact or fiction were left out. We're going to get into that a little bit uh, later on about uh, from the director, John Jobson. But, you know, what you saw there could not be immediately debunked. So that's Scott's point here in the cold open was that uh, that feeling you got, well, that's a hunch, essentially. You can't totally, you can't definitively point to something and say, ah, gotcha. Because I, I planted a number of seeds which answered questions. One question is, why are you not getting the best shot? And these are the seeds. The first seed is I wanted a 
strained relationship between the cameraman and the surgeon. I can't talk about it. I can't make, but, but this is the situation. I don't want you in my surgery room. I don't need you here. I'm trying to do something here. This is an alien for crying out loud. I'm already on, on my edge and I've got you in my face. So how do I portray that? So I get him to go around to the shoulder and I get the guy to put his hand out and to go away. Because your job is to film it. I'm not interested in you filming it. I'm interested in my job. And you are extra. I don't need you here. I don't want you here. This is not for you. This is not a TV show. This is a serious thing, right? And you are getting in my way. So now that I've said that to you, if you watch the film back, you will actually see him. And you, it helps you buy it. Because it's subliminal. It's ever so slight. The same way that when he's showing what he's going to do is a performance. But who's it for? His audience is in the window. All right? So we'll leave it be. If there were nobody in the window and he was doing all this, what would you think? He goes to the feet and the hands. And what he's doing is he's saying to the guy in the window, there are six toes. Now, if that guy in the window wasn't there, he wouldn't need to do that. And he wouldn't need to talk about it because the nurse or the assistant is going to write it down on the notes and taking notes the whole time, right? So he is, in a way, performing for the guy in the window. He's actually showing us the toes. He's showing us that. Another thing you can look out for, and now we're talking behind the scenes, right? Remember I told you the sheet of metal was six foot by four foot? So I've got my wrapping at the front, and it goes all the way along to the top where the head is. Now, when you look at the, the, the view of behind the head, you will see there's only a little bit of metal that goes down because there wasn't enough to cover the... So you can actually see the wood and a little bit of covering. So it's a wooden frame underneath it. So the other thing that you will see is I go to some length to show you how great this table is. You will see that I film under the table. I'm showing you the tray. Look, look, the tray, it works, everything works. Look, look, can't do that because it's handheld. I can slip a little bit off frame and just give you a glimpse like I gave you a glimpse of the electric socket on the right-hand side, like I gave you a glimpse of all the bits and pieces. So, so there's a lot of that. Would there be more than one camera? Absolutely, there isn't. Would there be a locked-off camera? Of course there would. There isn't. Lots of questions. The backstory answers all of them. Why were there only one camera? Because well, it's top secret. Couldn't have any more people in here. Only, only this guy had to get the secret. He was at the crash site. And he was, he was logging all the stuff. So you know what? He's the only guy that knows. We can't bring anyone else in. It's top secret. Okay, so what's, is he, that's it. He's just got his camera and that's it. He's doing what he can do. Why is he not getting the way? Well, he got the best shot on the other one he did. He didn't do one. He did three. So it's not important to get the best shot on this brain because he's already got those shots. Because it's not the only one he did. So there's lots of arguments why it makes sense. All of them are nonsense. <laughs> <laughs> right? It's true. If you're an analytical person and you have the ability to backward engineer it, which is exactly what we did, right? We invented it before we made it so that we didn't make it and then make the story afterwards. Because if you make it and then create the story afterwards, you haven't made things on this body that's going to fit the story. So you need to have the story first. John and my ex at the time used to ridicule me regularly that I was doing too much and nobody cared and no one was going to look. And then I had great pleasure after the Fox program showed, and then six months later, and I said to John, John, where's everyone banging the door down? Where are they? 
I said, had I not done all of these things that you were ridiculing me for, this would have been exposed by now. And there's no payday for anybody. Because our payday was make a documentary. We had to keep it alive until everyone said, we don't know what it is, right? It's an alien. That's what it is. And then, oh, no, that's what we want. If somebody said early on, this is fake and this is why, there's no payday. Now, Ray didn't think that. Ray thought my payday is going to happen right away before they get a chance to see it. But I didn't think like that. I, wasn't in that. I didn't have that benefit of knowing he's selling it now. So we needed to maintain that secrecy as long as it took till people said, I don't know what this is. And as long as that happened, we've now got a payday. Because that documentary would have been brilliant. That would have been an amazing reveal. You know, Ta-da! this is how we did it. He sold it, and, and the problem, that it was so good that, and I'm not, I'm not bigging myself up because I've got to tell you, John Humphreys is one of the leading sculptors in the world today. He's a, he's a Royal Academy lecturer today. He worked on Doctor Who, right? I read that. Oh, and, and Max Headroom, yeah. But you know what? They're not his good bits. He, he did some other amazing stuff in films, you know. So this is no chump. My ex did all the research, and she used to work for a government body at the time, and she had passes to get into libraries and secret, you know, there's a big medical library in, in Maribone. You have to be a doctor or government to get into it. And she was able to go in and research not only how do you do an autopsy, but how do you do an autopsy in 1947? But not only how do you do an autopsy in 1947, how do you do it in America? These are details that were so important. If we did an autopsy 1947 UK, it would be found a fake straight away because the procedures, the tools, the methods, everything was wrong. They were different. And that's a level of detail that, that you don't know till you scratch the surface. But we did the, um, the cameraman statement. I flew to Los Angeles and Gary Shufield went to New York and he flew in from New York and met me in Los Angeles. And I bought, I think it was a either ICA or a JVC, I can't remember now, but it was an American brand, I can't remember. But it was a, a VHS, NTSC VHS camcorder. And we we're going to throw it away. Don't need it. I can't use it, right? Because I just need to film NTSC camera original footage and then send it to England, right? Now, if it wasn't, I can tell you it's been transferred. So if I can tell you it's been transferred, only one can. So I couldn't take my camera and go to America and film it. So that was all part of the budget. I had to buy a camera. I didn't have time to hire one. I didn't have time to find people. Just go very, very quiet. Because if I had to hire a camera, I'd have to give you ID and hire a camera and be in the system. You don't know who's watching. You don't know who's listening and who's looking. So I bought a camera. We shot it on, on this camera, and I left it in the States. Okay, this is our last segment with Spiros, who we can't thank enough for his time. Uh, again, mm. a detail-oriented guy. And the last thing we wanted to ask him is, where is everything at now? What's going on here 25 years later? And most importantly, uh, what's going on? He seems to be locked in this battle with Ray Santilli. What's going on with that? I did ask Santilli to come clean. I said, I'm writing a book, and you don't come out very good in it. I've actually written it three or four times because I wasn't very kind a couple of times and it's not my style to do that. But I was telling the truth, you know. Still, I thought, no, this is not gracious. I'm not coming out gracious here. I'm, I'm, I'm taking no prisoners and I, I, it's not my style. And I, I rewrote it several times. And he's, he's a, 
a more palatable villain than he was before. But I gave him an opportunity and I gave John Humphreys an opportunity to come clean because I'm going to spill the beans. And I said to John, here's the thing with John. John, you contributed to the design and I want you to share the copyright. I don't want you at any time later to say I ripped you off or that I did something without you. I want you to be part of this. But if you're saying you saw real film, then you and I are on the same, not on the same team. And he said, well, I have to say that now because I've, you know, I said, no, if you're going to take that, then I'm going to copyright the film in my name because you're, you're saying you copied it from something else. It can't be your copyright now. So if you're going to stay to that story, I'm going to reveal that it isn't real and you're going to be the guy that lied. So as long as we're understanding that this is the situation, are you saying to me, you can have the copyright, I don't want it? Because this is time now. This is the time to say it because I'm going to get it and you're going to be without it. No, no, you, you can have it. Okay, great. Thank you. Tick that box. Next thing. If you don't tell the truth now and then later you come out as a liar, how would that leave you? How would that leave you? Because there is a fraud involved and I don't want you to be an accessory to that fraud. So point two, how do you feel about that? And his answer was, I've got nothing to do with anything. I'm not going to speak to anybody anymore. I'm not going to do any interviews. I want to speak to anybody. I'm just going to go and get on with my life. I don't want to know, right? So, okay, John, that's fine. I had that conversation. That's done. I had the conversation with Ray. And I said, Ray, this is the situation, right? It's my film. I want the credit for it. I want to make my money on it because I, I've invested. And I said, and you either tell the truth or I will expose you. So what do you want? And he said, well, we can work together. If you say there was original film, it's a better story. And we, you know, we can go together and I'll tell people how great you are. And I said, I don't need you to do that. I'm not in it for an ego trip. I'm in it for the right thing, right? I painted the Mona Lisa and I want the credit for it. You know, this is a historical thing. No, no, I, I, you know, it's a shame we can't meet in the middle. Okay, we're not going to meet in the middle. So I've done the right thing. I've given them the opportunity to do the right thing. Now I've got to do my own thing. So the conclusion is this. I want to make a feature film. I've met a couple of people who are in the business. They've worked with John Lucas. They've worked with a number of people on very high-profile projects. They're big fans of the alien autopsy. In fact, the reason they got into business was because of the alien autopsy. They, they saw it, thought it was real. Now they're in special effects. They're, they're in special effects. So I love that. I love the synergy. So we're going to do something together. Meanwhile, there's a six-part TV special, which I've been asked to do, which I might do depending on the feature film, depending on what I don't want to conflict. So that's where I'm at. Now, I've nearly finished my book in terms of release. I wanted to have it out for the 25th, for the, for the anniversary. That's full of stuff. One chapter is the story, just the story, the fictitious story of what this alien is, and then it's everything else. So everything we, everything we spoke about, plus a lot more. So on the 25th, I'm going to be taking pre-orders. It's going to be released at the end of the month, and it's been a long time coming. So you know what? From that book, some things will come. You know, uh, Philip Mantle said something to me a little while ago, which was, this is never going away. And he said that to me 15 years ago. And I said, I said, Phil, no one's interested. It's 10 years ago. No one's interested in this anymore, right? He said to me, it's not going anywhere. 
He said it's it's in pop culture now. It's one of those things. It's just going to keep regurgitating with every anniversary, with every new thing. I mean, last year, just when I thought everything was dead, a guy pops up and says, "I was working for the CIA and I saw this film in the CIA." Right? And people start asking me, "What do you think of that?" And I said, "Well, I'll tell you what. He's not telling the truth." And I'll tell that up, say it up front. And then eventually what you do is you, you, you look at what he has said and he didn't say anything of the sort. He didn't see this film. He saw a film. Now, if there's another film and it's real, I don't know. But this film wasn't around until 1995. So I already know. And then it's for them to find out. And eventually they do find out. So is it going anywhere? No, I don't think so. I did say something to somebody that told me they saw my film in a military institution in 1969. And I said to him, because he didn't know that I made the film, right? And he was giving me an interview. And I said to him, did you see this film? Or did you see something that maybe was like this film? No, no, it was this film. I said, was it exactly this film? I'm talking about the room, the setting. The, the, yeah, it was identical. And then he said the word again, identical, to reinforce it. Now, I am sitting there. I know he's lying. 100%, I know he's lying, right? But he's telling me like he doesn't know who I am, right? So it's identical. And I think to myself, okay, well, what are the chances of me in my magical world, imagining a clock on that wall, imagining a Bunsen burner and the thing, and imagining all these things, a window and the telephone and the whole, imagining it and getting it right. What are the chances of that? Because I'm good, I'm not that good. I'm not that good. <laughs> so I know, I know for a fact when people say that they can replicate this film, what they don't say is what they're going to replicate. People have tried to replicate it, and they've replicated the body. They've made another body. And they, they seem to forget the enormity of what this film is. There's a set. There's a table. There are suits. There is so much. Even the debris footage that you see and take for granted, there's a language I invented on those. And it's made from Greek, so that a Greek person would be able to say, oh, yeah, that says eleftheria, that means freedom, right? So they think they've discovered something, right? And I even made it, so if you turn it upside down, it says video. And do you know what other people say? They say, ah, it's video, it must be a fake, because it's a video. They didn't have videos in 1947. And then, then the argument, of course, is it's Latin, and it's older than 47, the word video, right? So... So it's like, catch me, oh, you didn't catch me. Catch me, you didn't catch me. So it's layers and layers and layers of fuses for you to blow so that I can tell you they're wrong. There's so much. I mean, it's in the book. You see there's all the stuff's in the book. When is the book coming out? Well, it's going to be pre-ordered at the end of this month. And it's being decided how much it's going to be and all that sort of stuff. I'm not doing all that stuff. My sister and I run a publishing house, so, so she's doing it all. The website is um, malarisinprint.co.uk. Have you ever considered when you hear somebody and they seem so genuine and maybe over the years, the guy, you know, in his memory, it fades over the years and it's not exactly the same, but ever consider the possibility that maybe he did see some kind of alien autopsy film? I haven't got a clue if there is another film and why there shouldn't be. And I don't have a clue whether or not aliens exist or not. I'm not saying they don't. Just this one isn't real. That's all I'm saying. But the, the thing is, right, when you ask a question and you get an answer, like I said to you, the autopsy table's fake. I can prove it. 
The suits are fake, I can prove it. There are no walls here, I can prove that. When you put it all together and you keep doing that, eventually you think enough, 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 right? <laughs> it's fake. But when you ask people questions who say they've seen an alien, I've interviewed 30 people from Roswell who were there in 1947. And when someone says to me, this is what we saw, and then I look back at what they originally said, and they said it had three fingers on it, right? And now they're telling me what they saw is this. And I point it out. And I say, but you said this is what you saw, but actually what you saw is that. Which one is it? And they say, no, no, this is what I saw. I made a mistake. Because human nature dictates who we are, okay? As a magician, I know who not to pick. I know who not to pick. This person's going to be bad for me. This person's going to be good for me. If you know about human nature, you know human, people, human beings want to be special. If you want to impress somebody on a job interview or if you want to go on a date and then you meet somebody's the new girl's friend, remember their name. Just remember their name and then mention them and say, so listen, Mary, right? Do you know what an impression you just made? Huge impression because she feels important and special enough because you remember her name, right? When you're in business and you shake someone's hand and you say that they call them by name, you cement your relationship with them because they're feeling special. So when you're talking to a person that's seen an alien, they may not have seen an alien. They may have made it up, you know, because people do that. People lie, you know. But if they did, let's say they did see an alien. Let's say what they saw was a shadow and there was flashing lights in the sky and that's all they saw. Well, now they've just told you it's got three fingers and it's got, well, that could be made up. It could just be made. They did see something, right? It could be true still. So you've just got to know they want to be special. So if you give them enough to be special, right? Yep, this is what I saw. Because this is a film, it exists, and it actually makes me right. And if I saw that, that means I'm part of this, which makes me special, because no one else saw this. I'm the special one. And they become a celebrity because of it. Why did you kill John Lennon? Because I wanted his celebrity. But you're killing him to do that. You're becoming the devil. To Yeah, but I just want to be, I just want to be special. There's no common sense to be had from it. So if you are the sort of person that saw an alien, and if you're in that realm, you're looking for the extraordinary and you want to believe. So I just give you evidence that it belongs. Be, here we are. There's the evidence. Now you're going to run with this evidence because, see, I told you I was special. And that's why I think a lot of the UFO community hate me because, you know, they think I'm saying that UFOs don't exist. I'm not saying that. I'm not saying that. I'm not that arrogant. I don't know. I don't know. I've seen odd things flying around. I don't know what they are. They could be a plane. They could be anything. I don't know. For the record, I'm not saying aliens don't exist. And I'm not saying anything. I'm just saying this film is not real. That's all I'm saying. There is no real alien autopsy film that I've ever seen. That's all I can say. All right, so here we are. Recapping something I said earlier, everyone that I know says they knew this film was fake from the jump. But somehow... We're not upset. We're not upset about that. But two two billion people have watched it, though. Why would they even look at it if it's so obviously fake? More on that in a bit. But here's the fascinating thing about this and what it teaches us about human nature. The types of people you come across in life, you learn about that from this. And in this story, we have the artist and the salesman, along with all of the various day players, each one working their own angle in a way. So here we are. Again, this film's a hoax. We all know that for sure now. 
And some of us have known it since 2006 when Ray Santilli called it a recreation in the Aim and Investigate series, which he... Or apparently. is it? Yeah. Or, oh, God, there we go. <laughs> I'm sorry. <laughs> there could be frames. You or don't know. Maybe we do. Uh, others right. of us have just known, even if we couldn't prove it, that it wasn't real. It was something we just felt. Uh, before we drill down on that, let's talk about that Fox special that ran in the U.S. Because I feel like if you watch that special, as incredulous as you might have been about the state of, of it being a tabloid-type program... It really did a good job of trying to convince you that there were a lot of things about this that was plausible. There was a lot of hype around that. And both Stan Winston and renowned UFO investigator Kevin Randall came out after that special and said that they clearly stated when they were being filmed that they thought the footage was fake, but it was edited out by the producers. Why would they do that? Well, it's obviously way more compelling. But just for what it's worth, if we find out something's fake, we always put it in the show. We don't edit it out. Uh, we don't care about ratings, but <laughs> maybe <laughs> no, we should. Better hope not. Yeah, no. yeah. But there's a lot of talk about the Roswell crash in the special, and that's important because we want to be clear, there's literally no real connection between the Roswell incident, whatever that may be, and the alien autopsy footage. This is something we've learned just uh, by the nature of it being a hoax. And because one thing is a hoax doesn't mean the other one is or was. It's an entirely mm. different situation. Mm. But... The circumstances of that crash inform what these guys needed to make alien autopsy believable, recapping something Forrest said earlier. The debris with the strange writing, the time period, the, the rumors around it all. Now, notably, right there in the Fox special, Jesse Marcel Jr., whose dad brought this stuff home, the pieces of the craft home to them, said the debris did not match what he had seen as a child. And uh, they left that in the Fox special, which I thought was pretty interesting. And I remember one of the things he said, I believe, was that the I-beam with the writing on it looked different. It was much bigger, he mm -hmm. said. He said the scale mm -hmm. wasn't the same. That in itself, and I should have latched onto it back then. If I had, you know, like I said, I was, you know, 25 and stupid back when I saw this. Uh, not that all 25-year-olds were stupid, but I mean, after all, like I said, in part one, I was taping stink bombs to uh, <laughs> chairs, so. <laughs> that was brilliant. Yeah. <laughs> but my point is just that when that guy said that, you know, this is the guy who was exposed to the original evidence. Even if the Roswell crash was some kind of military experiment, let's say it was a weather balloon or a balloon. Uh, I, I've since read that it might have been a balloon, not a weather balloon. Maybe the weather balloon thing was a cover up for the fact that it was a balloon that was designed to determine whether or not uh, the Soviet Union was detonating nuclear weapons at high altitude. Well, let's say it was that. And by the way, Forrest, this is something that occurred to me about that, mm -hmm. like the I-beams with the weird writing and the hieroglyphics, which a lot of people are like, oh, no, it's like Hexburg and da, da, da. The bigger <laughs> picture to me is if you're working on a top secret project for the U.S. military and you have an object that no one's ever seen before and you do run the risk of it crashing down to earth, what better mm -hmm. way from a psychological operation standpoint than to put some funky writing on it to make people think when they come across it, not that it's a U.S. military asset, especially if it might crash in a foreign country, but that it came from deep outer space. Wow, you were just chasing your tail. There, no, no, no. I, that is logical. <laughs> Think about it. I that's what I would do if I was developing like something, and I'm like, I got to worry about it coming down in a foreign country. Why not put this crazy uh, googly language on it so that people <laughs> won't come up and be, oh, that's Russian. That's Russian writing. Oh, that's U.S. It's a U. That's this is clearly a U.S. asset. We don't know what it is, but it's U.S. War begins, or we need to steal this technology. Yes, it's interesting. I'll give you that. But what I will say is that any piece of machinery that is Earth-made, uh, there's very smart people that can figure out the forensics on that and figure out where individual components come from. Hey, I'm not saying it's uh, going to work. Country. 
in the long <laughs> run, but it, it can be enough to well, throw off the scent initially. I would say that that's a smart psyops idea combined with something that maybe is genuinely scientific. Yes. Uh, but of course, you know, that is one big theory, as we all know, and we're not going to debate Roswell here. But of course, uh, yes, the the detection of thermonuclear blasts in the Soviet Union is the reason for that. That's an easy one to put up there. The other one that's my favorite, it's not my favorite. I just told a fib. I think it's the craziest one is that Josef Mengele, the Nazi doctor, was scooped up by the Russians in their version of Operation Paperclip, took to the USSR, and uh, he performed uh, these weird experiments on children, unfortunately, which ended up in hydrocephaly. They had very large heads, deformed bodies, and that's what was stuffed onto this craft sent over by the Russians to freak us out. Oh. That's another prevailing theory. Wow. You've not I heard that heard, one? No. Good Lord. Oh, come on. That's all over the uh Well, the I got to be honest. I haven't looked into Roswell in a long, long time. Right. Because since we've been doing the show, I lost interest in the really big mainstream stories. I don't mind unless I can find something out about it that's surprising, which that is pretty surprising. <laughs> but like, so, it's, it's like, ah, oh, it's Roswell again. You know, it's okay. It's Roswell again, which, yeah. you know, but how did they fly it then? It was a drone. That's one These of the points. Kids is that couldn't <laughs> be flying it. Okay. So maybe you have some kind of uh, a Foo Fighter, Hanabu Nazi UFO thing. Like where'd they get that then? I don't know how we got to Honey Boo but whatever like, what you, you say. You, you know, the, <laughs> we talked about that in the Nazi Bell. <laughs> yes. No, episode. I know. I'm is kidding. That, uh, I know what the Hanabu yes, okay. is. Yeah. All right. Well, so, yeah, okay, uh, now it, I'm going to laugh. <laughs> so the idea, though, is that uh, now Apologies. some of the explanations British are people. getting as... <laughs> Look, we're featuring them yeah. in, a, in a crazy story. So yeah. the idea, though, is that now you're you're venturing on an explanation that, to me, all, sounds almost as wacky and crazy as some other people in the universe somewhere or ultra-terrestrials or they're coming through a portal, whatever you want to say, somehow crashing. Now, of course, the idea, uh, and maybe we'll do Roswell. It's been, yes, I know it's been done to death and we're going to complain. One idea is that there's actually two crashes there. Well, if you're that advanced a civilization, can't you steer the dang thing? What happened? Well, they accidentally crashed and uh, two UFOs crashed into each other. There were two crash sites. It's a rich tapestry of strangeness and conspiracy and cover-up and, and uh, UFO lore. You know, there's all these these kind of theories that pop up that are, uh, to me, just as, as wild as uh, two UFOs crashing. <laughs> that, to me, you know, now you're going to have all these other conspiracies by foreign countries. And, uh, you know, that's my whole thing. It's like when you kind of get desperate for a rational explanation, the rational explanation sounds more desperate and crazy than the irrational one. Well, I absolutely agree with that. You're right. I think that can easily happen. Well, coming back to the special and wrapping up what I wanted to say about it, yeah. there were a lot of things they noticed in it or that they did. And here's the bottom line. It was propaganda. Tenenko's propaganda. Mm -hmm. You know, I, I studied film in college and we learned all about propaganda films and it's really fascinating. And it's just about how much power you have just by the way that you share the message. And that's what the Fox special was. For example, they, they talked about the phone being from 1937. They only talked about the things that they knew would reinforce the idea that the film was real. And for me, that part that kept the doubt in my mind, again, and I've said it before, but I'm going to say it one more time, is that this gentleman, Lawrence Kate at Eastman Kodak, who looked at the edge symbols and saw that the diamond and the square were on the edge code there, that meant that it came from either 1927, 1947, or 1967. And then he added that the 1927 film was different. It had a corrosive coating. I don't know if it was a sailor's nitrate back then, but for whatever reason, it wasn't 27. 
So it would have had to have been 47 or 67. And keep mm-hmm. in mind that Larry Kate was the guy Fox asked to comment on the film stock authenticity and explain the edge symbols back in 1995 when they did the special. But he is not the original guy that Spiro showed the film to in Rochester, New York. There was this gentleman named Bob Shell who was a renowned photographic consultant. He had a whole lot to say about this back in the day. In fact, he was on Coast to Coast with Art Bell talking about it. And he was like, you know what? Kate is just a salesman at Kodak in Hollywood. He did not work at their Rochester location where Spiros originally took the film. Shell also said that he himself did some preliminary analysis on alien autopsy at one point, and he pointedly stated that the film that he saw coincides with a type of Kodak film previously available that had very little fogging. His contention was that if alien autopsy was a hoax, it was shot many years before 1995. It still seems like maybe Spiros just had him fooled, but Shell's story could be a whole episode in itself. In fact, he was eventually convicted of involuntary manslaughter in an unrelated incident. But getting back on point here, remember when Spiros originally showed that film to the examiner at Kodak in Rochester, he pulled out just enough of it to show frames where you could see the alien. And then he ran it back, you know, because the edge symbols are spread out kind of far. So it makes sense. You have to find the spot where the edge symbols are, he ran it back and he was running his hands along the edge and he could feel that splice between the Fuji film that they had shot Alien Autopsy on and the original 1947 Kodak film that they bought to make it all seem real. And when he felt that splice go through his fingers, he then showed the edge symbols to the examiner Kodak, who said, oh yeah, okay, well these are those uh, symbols for 1927, 47, or 67. And he wanted to check out more of it and do some chemical analysis on it, but Spiros postured him and was like, you know what? No, we're not doing that. We can't leave this here. It's too valuable. And we're going to leave. We don't need to know what you think. And at which point the guy's like, no, 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 I'll, I'll tell you what I think. That was a masterstroke because that whole Kodak mm-hmm. certification, that was the part that for me, even 25-year-old me was like, I can't get past that. I can't get past, even if this is a hoax, is it a hoax from 1947? Like, I don't, you know, mm. that was the thing that hung me up. But in hindsight, and I talked with Spiros about this a little bit, it's not in the final cut of the show. We will later be publishing a much more full version of our interview with Spiros on Patreon. We took a note from our listeners and decided to make things shorter, believe it or not. You're not <laughs> what? <laughs> Yeah, so there's more stuff that he said, and you'll be hearing that on Patreon later. Uh, We may possibly even be doing uh, one with video way down the line, because we did record Mm -hmm. it on Zoom, but I haven't looked at it yet, so I don't know if it's usable. But the point is, the things that I talked about with him that that got cut out was that I personally, after 20 plus years of working in the business of post-production, I could easily now see that the grain was digitally introduced that it was a digital kind of grain. And also I felt mm. like the contrast, there was way too much to it. Mm. The blacks were crushed down way too dark and the white was too bright. And so it had had an overall effect of an applied filtration to it, but I never could have spotted that back when it came out. So that observation, even for me, it's like, oh yeah, this has to be fake. Cause look, it's digitally altered. That's something I couldn't have said back then. And I can say it now in hindsight, like a lot of people can say about a lot of other things about it. But again, the biggest thing for me that kept me wondering what if was the edge code and the idea that the film had been made in 1947. Yeah. But you know, in my gut, like a lot of listeners, I knew it wasn't real. I just couldn't point exactly to why. So, but that's your instinct. Mm. That's my instinct. And you should always trust those. Well, where's the 35 millimeter film of Belloc opening the Ark of the Covenant in Raiders of the Lost Ark? Yeah. Good question. Well, it got fried. Yeah. By God. I think. Right. <laughs> the right. No, my point earlier, yeah, all these uh, extraordinary events do get filmed. They, the film goes somewhere. 
that film, if not all melted, would have the proper edge coating. And if you could produce it, uh, would go a long ways to a thorough examination. But that also goes to my point that anything extraordinary, they're going to make a note of it. They're going to yeah. record it somehow. Yeah. So, but yeah, you're right. It, that did go a long, I felt the same way. It did go a long way. So what Spiro said, once you have established that and that gets out there, it's like that press release idea we talked about is that you don't have to fake DNA. You don't have to produce a body. You just have to announce that that objection has been taken care of. Yeah. Don't look here anymore. And that's what Spiro said. We're done. As soon as the, the guy, somebody at Kodak said like, well, yeah, it's possible. That's what you hear. That's the soundbite. That's what you go with. And, well, yeah. And, and imagine, I did too. It's like, wow, I, it made me, that did make me question. Well, and imagine if you take someone like Spiros and instead of him being an entertainer and doing what he's doing out in the world, he works for a branch of the military. Yeah. Imagine how effective he would be at controlling the narrative of something and, and, and faking something, especially now with the technology we have now and his determination to, or, or attention to detail. You know, he told us after our interview that Ray had, he thought, made up to $18 million off of mm. licensing Alien Autopsy, which is mm -hmm. not bad, springing from a trip looking for home movies of Elvis in Cleveland, if that part of the story is even true. Hoaxing appears to be big business, if you do it right. But how many people could have paid as much attention to detail as Spiros did back then? Nowadays, you can literally pull any video of the sky down off of YouTube, pop a UFO into it in After Effects in probably less than an hour. And um, if you spend a whole day on it, you can make it look flawless. These special effects, though, they were all in camera. You wouldn't even attempt to do something like this in camera today. You do it with CGI, computer-generated images, and it would look pretty good. But in my opinion, it would still look fake. Someday that won't be the case, but we're not quite there yet. In some ways, the CGI gives you so much control that it's harder for you to not go too far with it and make it too unbelievable. And that's the nice thing about doing something in camera and practically like Spiros did. You don't have that control. Oh, we can't change the texture of its skin. We can't do, so we got to make it simple. We got to keep it simple and analog. And for me, that was part of what made it seem more real was like, you know, oh, well, we're not applying the kitchen sink in terms of effects on this. This is just X, Y, and Z. It's more organic, which maybe is more what an alien would really look like. I don't know. Here's the other thing. Fox purportedly knew that it was fake when they made the special. Mm -hmm. So uh, why wouldn't they say so? Well, it's convincing enough to make money on. It seems to me that most people that were involved in the distribution of it thought it was fake, but didn't really decide it for sure until they met Ray Santilli. Something about him convinced them it might not be on the up and up, apparently. So we found this letter, this is pretty fascinating, between the director of the Fox special, John Jobson, and a gentleman named David, who appeared to be investigating the validity of alien autopsy, and uh, more specifically, Ray Santilli back in uh, 1999. This is dated January 15th, 99. We have a link to it. We got it off the Wayback Machine Internet Archive. This is for a website that's no longer up. And the subject line is titled, Additional Insight on the Alien Autopsy. And this is an excerpt of the letter from the director of the fact or fiction alien autopsy uh, Fox piece. I can certainly fill in a few blanks with regard to my own experience on the film. My time with Santilli and private investigator Bill Deere. As I have already detailed on numerous occasions, my history with Kiviat, that was the producer, as well as how I came on to the alien autopsy project, I won't elaborate here. I should add, however, since the world's greatest hoaxes has brought it all up again, 
that the events and experiences on the alien autopsy did have direct and relevant connections to the accusations made against me regarding the Snowwalker film, that I was the hoaxer. But that has been covered elsewhere, so I don't even know what that's about, but um, mm. sounds fascinating. Although I conducted all the Roswell interviews for the alien autopsy film, Walter Hout, Dr. Jesse Marcel, Kevin Randall, Frankie Rowe, among many others, it's really the London story that needs to be clarified. I went to London to accomplish three things, to film the background story, conduct the interviews with Ray Santilli, Dr. C.M. Milroy, and Philip Mantle, and to retrieve those supposedly original frames of film to take to Kodak for analysis. As I have said repeatedly and loudly, my immediate response upon meeting Santilli was that he's a fraud. I had gone into the project with an open mind. I thought the footage was suspect, but more because I'm a skeptic than because of anything in the footage. I think the footage left everyone, even the most skeptical, with a wow, what if feeling upon the first viewing. I had only seen it twice before leaving for London, and at that time, no other experts had yet screened it. But Santilli's evasiveness and shady demeanor were just too much. Bear in mind, this was his early days. He had only done that London grand unveiling thus far, and at that point, he was an unknown entity. Santilli was still negotiating his deal with Fox when I pitched up to his office, so he held up the interview until the signed contract arrived, which gave me some time to look into his background. Now again, this has been detailed ad nauseum elsewhere, but let me make one thing clear. I did warn Kiviat and Fox that they were dealing with a major fraud here and asked for time to investigate, and I made the request at this point to bring in my private eye friend, Bill Deere. It was then made clear to me that if the footage was exposed as a hoax before the show aired, the ratings would suffer. I highlight this because it was the turning point for me and my producer, Andy Schatzberg. We wanted to make, and argued for, a real investigative film. So after, there was a considerable amount of tension and distrust. The rest is ratings history. Whether they, Fox and Kiviat, knew or were actually in on the hoax from the beginning, I still don't know. Now, keep in mind, this was back in 1999. But I have had and continue to have my suspicions. They certainly made a whole lot of money from it. In any case, from then on, we were just making entertainment, and any thoughts of a journalistic, fact or fiction approach went out the window. By the time we got to the editing room, it was an exercise in frustration, since we had to skip over or minimize the many discrepancies and obvious questions Santilli's story presented. Of course, there's always manipulation in editing, but it was frustrating to see the words of Bill Deere, Kevin Randall, Stan Winston, and others who'd made clear their belief that the footage was a hoax, twisted or cut out altogether to fit the Fox agenda. Nevertheless, I edited what I think is a pretty entertaining opening act. The film frames were a complete joke. This is regarding the uh, the frames that uh, Santilli mm. said were from the original film that had been somehow spliced into the alien autopsy. All right, he goes on to say about these film frames that came out later that were supposed to be from the original film that had disintegrated so badly. I had been shooting film for more than 20 years already, so to have these few frames in my hand that were so clearly selected for their lack of information, both in terms of Kodak markings and, more importantly, what was on the exposed film, nothing. So... That's a little bit of inside scoop on the mm. Fox special, and that's coming from the director of the special himself, who uh, seems like he hardly wanted to be involved with it by the time it aired. There's a very minor but uh, slightly odd connection, yeah. coincidence. Yeah. So, yeah, as you'll see in the, or if you've seen it, in the Fox special, 
fact or fiction. The private investigator he's talking about is William Deer. So it's kind of an unusual last spelling name, D-E-A-R, not the animal. Yes. Yeah, he's the private investigator who is limited to only trying to find the cameraman, not the veracity or the verisimilitude of, of uh, Ray in the film. When we were talking about uh, part one and uh, John Humphreys, I started thinking about someone also who appears in the film, Stan Winston, a visual effects artist and wizard, uh, top of his field. And uh, I was making that connection because we talked about him before in the PGF about creating the costume. And of course, there's a, you know, I was thinking about John Chambers, who was accused of creating the Bigfoot uh, Patty costume. And uh, his comment on it, Stan Winston didn't believe uh, Patty was done very well. It wasn't a very good job. He did not believe in it. But here, at least, he's the one whose comment was taken out later that it's like, well, yeah, uh, you know, he and his crew there are on film in the in the special saying like, well, it looks pretty well done. Like uh, the bleeding, the oozing, the wetness on the inside, the eye coverings that they take off, pretty well done. That person could uh, walk into Hollywood immediately and get a job. And it would be uh, really expensive for us to do it. So he was impressed with that. But of course, they left out the part, as you just pointed out from the letter, that you can't really blow the gag before you air the special because it's a lot more fun. A lot more people are going to tune in if there's some doubt. What John Johnson wanted to do is just let's really investigate this. But you got to admit it, if they blow it all, it might be a little less fun, less viewers equals less money. So I can see the networks, that's what they're out to do. They're out to make money. So, of course, uh, they're going to keep that mom direct them and limit them to uh, just a few certain areas, which is not going to blow the whole gag and reveal the magician's secrets. So in any case, I was looking at what Stan Winston had done, his uh, long list of movies, and I thought Harry and the Hendersons would be on it, but it's not. That was Rick Baker, who also weighed in on the PGF. But interestingly enough, the writer and director of Harry and the Hendersons was also named William Deere, D-E-A-R. Hmm. And I thought it was, did this private eye also, because he was going to write a screenplay with the director, John Jobs, and they were working on something. That was the murder mystery. It connected to a real event, I think. Of a, yes, it was. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah. That's the a dungeon whole, master. A lot of people was, know about that. Yeah. Yeah. Right. So uh, anyway, just, a, just an odd connection, but you'll see uh, there's always a confluence, uh, as with this, with special effects people being brought in because what can you trust when you see this? And of course, we've been talking about movies quite a bit because when somebody presents a visual medium, like, well, who do you ask about it? You ask filmmakers about it. You ask professionals, could you splice in a couple of frames and make it possible to have old footage mixed with new? Could you make a dummy like that that would appear to be real? How do they do that? And so those are the experts we ask. And it may sound trivial or trite, to always be consulting Hollywood on these kind of things. But when it comes to what people are presenting as evidence, like I said, special effects wizards, UFO footage, all this media that's really probably the best and only thing that people are going to believe if they're going to believe anything other than a, a personal experience, it's going to be a piece of footage that is presented. So who do we ask about that? Anyway, strange connection, I thought. Since we're going on and on and on about the PGF, the Patterson-Gimelin film, did you ask Spiros about it? Oh, you bet I did. I'm not an expert on it, but um, could I replicate it? Yep, absolutely. Is there anything special about it? No. And uh, why do I say that? The movement. Now, for example, my nephews are very athletic and they are very agile. 
And I say they're like cats. And what I mean by that is they move in a way, like my, one of my nephews is a goalkeeper, he flies through the air like a cat. And only somebody that studied that can know what I'm talking about. This guy walks like a man. If you look at different species, they walk differently, they move differently. Well, all right, after hearing that, does that change your opinion about the Patterson-Gimlin film? Uh, no, and I'll tell you why. Because mm. Bob Gimlin is no Ray Santilli, I, as, mm. from, from what I understand. I haven't met Ray, but I have met Bob. And much like Spiro said to us in some of our outtakes, people tried to recreate his film, Alien Autopsy, and they couldn't. Mm. Never looked right. But as good <laughs> as Spiros is, I'm not convinced he could recreate the PGF. All due respect to you, sir. No, no. But, uh, I'm not convinced. <laughs> I would like to see that, but I don't have $100,000 laying around to experiment with it. So No, but didn't that uh, BBC special try to do it? Yeah. And it looked like a guy in a fuzzy orange suit. Yeah, it was horrible. Nobody, <laughs> yeah, if you can't recreate it, that's definitely a, a tick mark. But but I will say mm -hmm. that I might have approached our investigation into the Patterson-Gimlin film differently had we looked at right. this prior to that. So that's going to affect me moving forward okay all right man well so as we wrap up these two episodes uh, i'm curious what do you think about all this all this approach i mean this is a different show for us because it's like we just came into this you know what this is a hoax let's talk about how it was a hoax and why it can't be real and let's lean on that in the future in our future investigation so that we can understand how an effective hoax can be done but i mean what's your takeaway well a lot of what we do as i said uh you know, you don't get a lot of answers when you study the paranormal. There's just more questions. That's the old saying. But what I've learned about is probably much more about human behavior and how people react to stuff. And of course, like I've said before, these are all human stories because that's why we care about them. There's a connection to us, the people, and what we believe in and, and why and how are our reactions gauged? Because if uh, aliens drop down and nobody cares, <laughs> is it even a thing? So in looking to that email from film director John Jobson, who was hired by Robert Kiviat to direct uh, several portions of that uh, special, all the interviews, and Jobson wanted to dig into it, as you just heard, and again, to restate his sentence here, I had gone into the project with an open mind. I thought the footage was suspect, but more because I'm a skeptic than because of anything in the footage. I think the footage left everyone, even the most skeptical, with a, wow, what if? feeling upon first viewing. So that's interesting. I took that and I thought about that and it's like, okay, so here's a filmmaker and it's a callback to what Scott was saying about at least the film being decent enough and well-produced enough that you can look at it and you can't immediately pick it apart. It might give you a feeling that it, there's no verisimilitude here, that there's something uh, off about this. You're not buying into it. Then you have to ask yourself, is it because you are more of a skeptic than because of something you saw in the frame, in the field, or the mise-en-scene. Right. What's outside of the frame that you can't see? What, what about the world that the, the frame is showing you? Do you believe that? Do you buy it? So I think for me, and my conclusion on that part, it might be reversed. I was more skeptical from what I saw in the frame than going in being skeptical about the existence of aliens. So, like I said, that was that feeling. That was my hunch. I couldn't prove it. I just got a feeling about it, looking upon all those elements. It's like, yeah, there's nothing in here. And again, keep it simple. Don't overload it where you're going to blow the gag because you you did too much to a hoax. We've seen that too, I think, when people uh, burst onto the media scene and 
there's too much story. They added too many details because they think people like, well, they're not going to believe this unless we throw a bunch of crap at the wall to see what sticks. That's what you get yourself into trouble. And that's what I was saying a few minutes ago about the difference between being forced to do this practically and in camera and then having some giant computer with 75 different skin textures in it and all kinds of things that you can very easily create by pushing buttons. It takes a lot lot of time, a lot to render it and make it look right and the light and all that kind of stuff. But it's like then when you're throwing all that stuff in, it kind of contributes to that overall perception of how a liar provides too many details because they don't believe the story themselves. <laughs> and what's yeah. happening here, what was so magnificent about what Spiros did, whether you believed it or not, was the economy of details. It was just enough to give you what you needed. And the fact that it was shot in camera and that it was done practically and that, you know what, all we need is five or six props and we're going to deal with the electricity and we're going to make sure you don't see any reflections of me in this. Uh, not in a suit. He wore a suit as the cameraman. So that specifically in case mm-hmm. a reflective service caught him. So all that stuff and taking care of all those details as opposed to sitting down with, you know, 25 guys in cubicles on a render farm, you know, putting in every possible imaginable thing to make the mothership be the mothership, you know, and <laughs> right. like... Yeah, that's that is part of I'm sorry, I'm hijacking your. Oh, no, that's, that's okay. part of what I th- what I think is interesting. Yeah, so. I totally agree. Like I said, it's uh, you, you have that balance where if it had been uh, what's a movie that I thought like had pretty nice uh, visually pleasing set design and art direction, uh, The Shape of Water. And that's yeah. supposed to be late 50s, early 60s, I think, uh, probably early 60s and a lot of vintage stuff. But like that's where you had taken an alien creature to uh, perform horrible experiments on it. But then I think, like, would it be that elaborate? I mean, it's would it look like that? Well, we don't know. So uh, there's a balance there. And I think for what Spiros and John did, it was just the right amount. And the proof of that is that it wasn't immediately debunkable. Right. And that for so, like, for a few decades, it was just hanging out there like a big old matzo ball of doubt. <laughs> It's like, who knows? I don't know. I don't believe it, but I can't disprove it. So uh, now in talking about the human nature side of it and what we learn, what do we learn from this, Scott? Well, I want to say a word about hoaxers because it's also a point that you wrote for me to talk about earlier. (laughs) (laughs) I should probably get to that. Look, just because someone claims they hoax something, if we want the truth, you can't just take their word for it. It's human tendency. It's a human tendency to take the first and easiest claim in order to dismiss something uncomfortable. And the paranormal is quite uncomfortable to probably most people. That guy said he hoaxed it, so we're done here. It was a hoax. Let's move on. You know what I'm getting at? It's that, boy, I should come up with a phrase for this. It's taking one little thing and extrapolating that for all cases. It's our old friend, as I said at the top of the show, it's our old friend infrasound. When you apply infrasound, some people, a very small amount, a fraction of people, see a gray blob in the corner of their eye. There you go. That explains all ghosts. Let's move on. That's all baloney. Well, just because somebody lays claim to something, I want to see the same proof. Getting back to Edgar Casey, I, I made this point on Twitter. If the cures worked, I want to see proof of that. If the cures are harmful and deadly... I also want to see proof of that. Show me where it says that. In either case, if somebody claims it's a hoax, like, okay, show me how you did it. Well, one, because I'm I'm fascinated how you did it. But before I put this aside, put it on the shelf and say, mystery solved, I want to see proof of that too. 
So we have to look at even the claim of the hoaxer. Do they have proof they hoaxed it? Can they make a compelling argument for them being the hoaxer if they have no physical proof? At least for the PGF and Bob Hieronymus, for example, I don't see what he presented as proof, a claim that he used a football helmet covered in some horse hide or fake fur or whatever it was for Patty's head as being sensible proof. Right. I know what a football helmet looks like. You yeah. said, I just glued some fur on that and I, I took off the uh, the face guard. It's like, yeah, that's not what I'm seeing in the film. You're yeah. going to have to do better than that. Yeah. But a lot of people are like, well, there you go. Bob Aronimus said he did it. Oh, and uh, Greg Long says, oh yeah, I saw him do the walk. It's an older guy walking on his patio. Is that, is that the same thing? Well, he said it was the walk he did. There you go. We're done. That's what I think about that. Now, here's also something that your Fred brought up, which I thought was um, a pretty good and sensible claim. And it's something that a lot of people say. We hear this phrase quite a bit. It's the oft-used phrase, extraordinary claims require extraordinary evidence. You've heard that before, right? Oh, yeah. We brought it up before ourselves. On the I show. know we yeah. we have quite a bit, and and guess what, folks? I'm going to bring this up again when it comes Isn't up. Isn't that Carl Sagan? He made it famous, but here's the thing: so he didn't originate it. Like a lot of quotes uh, right. that are famous, somebody right. else came up with that first. That's uh, unknown and, and and not as cool. But here is something that goes over that because uh, again, to set this up, your friend uh, who I, we mentioned earlier, you asked them what they thought about uh, the alien autopsy film. And one point they made, which I agree with, is that, you know what, it just, yeah, extraordinary claims require extraordinary evidence. So, I don't know, man, it just didn't, yeah, it's not enough for me, it just didn't ring uh, true. Fox produced it, so there you go, and it's more than likely baloney. Well, my point here, which I will bookend, is that if you're asking for proof, what are you thinking about? Now, here's something that I have kind of learned going ghost hunting the last two years uh, during the summer in the in the Midwest. When you're sitting in a very haunted, spooky place, and there's a lot of you're seeing a lot of weird shadows out of the corner of your eyes, and and strange, small things, very small things are happening. And I come back and I say, Scott, we got to do a show on this, and it's the Randolph Infirmary or uh, the Octagon House, Octagon Hall, or it's Waverly. Whatever I've got, if I present it to you and it's a bit of creepy audio, well, that's pretty creepy. It's an EVP. A lot of people don't believe in those. If I take a photograph and it looks like a shadow in the corner, I would hope that our audience knows us by now and and, uh, and we're not charlatans. If we say we got it, we don't know what it is. We're just presenting it and you, you, you have to decide what it is, but we're telling you we honestly captured it. But what are people really wanting? Well, they, they want visual evidence. And that's why I was thinking like, man, if I don't get anything on video that's like in 4K <laughs> that Scott can edit and we can put it up on, on YouTube, it's like people just aren't going to buy into a, a piece of audio where I, I felt a chill. Like, well, it doesn't mean anything, you know. And not that I'm trying to prove ghosts exist to people. That You're never going to do that either. But what's going to be the most compelling and, and interesting? Well, what I would want to see, a piece of video. So what we're showing you here with the PGF and also with Alien Autopsy is footage. <laughs> what more do you want? Well, depending on how good the footage is, you might want a lot more. But here's my thing about extraordinary claims require extraordinary evidence. So this comes from a peer-reviewed journal, Frontiers in Psychology. It's a paper published online June 10th, 2011, and it's titled Extraordinary Claims Require Extraordinary Evidence, colon, the Case of Non-Local Perception, a Classical and Bayesian Review of Evidences by Patrizio E. Tresoldi. Well, I love that name. 
well, this is from Tresoldi's abstract, quote, starting from the famous phrase, extraordinary claims require extraordinary evidence, we will present the evidence supporting the concept that human visual perception may not have non-local properties. In other words, that it may operate beyond the space and time constraints of sensory organs in order to discuss which criteria can be used to define evidence as extraordinary, period, full stop, end quote. That sounds pretty interesting, doesn't it? Yeah, it does. Yeah, I didn't read further than that, other than <laughs> the intro. But no, wow, so our, um, our human visual perception may exist outside of our heads. Now, that's a big controversial statement right there. Yeah. But what I found pertinent and germane to this conversation is what is found in the introduction to the paper. So now, of course, that quote, extraordinary claims require, it was a phrase made popular by Carl Sagan, who reworded Laplace's principle. This is still from the paper, which says that, quote, the weight of evidence for an extraordinary claim must be proportioned to its strangeness. And that apparently appears in Gillespie et al., 1999. That's probably another paper. This statement is at the heart of scientific method and a model for critical thinking, rational thought, and skepticism everywhere. However, no quantitative standards have been agreed upon in order to define whether or not extraordinary evidence has been obtained. Consequently, the measures of, quote, extraordinary evidence, end quote, are completely reliant on subjective evaluation and the acceptance of extraordinary claims. In science, the definition of extraordinary evidence is more of a social argument than an objective evaluation, even if most scientists would state the contrary. And he gives an example here. Think about the recent debate about climate change from 2010. So what he's saying is that even scientists, there's no standard where we can point to like, well, that's pretty extraordinary evidence right there. It's subjective. It's personal point of view based on your beliefs. And if you're in the scientific mainstream, that can vary and it can be clumped together and there's no agreement on when someone is presented with extraordinary evidence. So then, what would you, dear listener, consider as proof? What was shown in the alien autopsy film, 17 minutes of visual, quote-unquote, proof, and I use the quotes here, was pretty extraordinary. Yeah. There's the thing. It's on the table. They're cutting into it. It's more extraordinary visual, quote-unquote, proof than the PGF because of its length and the detail and the thoroughness, but not as extraordinary than the PGF because of what is seen in the film. You get, you get what I'm saying? Yeah, it's, yeah, totally. You've got a ton of it. You got 17 minutes of evidence. What yeah. more do you want? You got parts from the ship. You got all this stuff, but you still don't buy it because no piece of film matters if you don't either believe in the possibility of what is presented or that what is presented is not convincing enough. So when I saw the alien autopsy footage for the first time, I was like John Chopson. I was open-minded. I had that wow factor, that what if factor. But unlike Jobson, as I said, I was more disbelieving from what I saw rather than being skeptical of the possibility of aliens. Now, one last thing about uh, uh, extraordinary claims and skepticism. I think also what we were trying to show here with covering this is that uh, we've not completely gone around the bend. <laughs> if, we, <laughs> if we see something that's obvious, we're going to say it. It's just that, you know, I have more things on the table than maybe most rational people. And I'm sorry to say that, but <laughs> I just consider more things as possible. Well, another gentleman that we've mentioned before, Marcello Truzzi, and I'm reading his wiki page here. I have not, I've not written this out. So I'm going to take the lazy route, going to phone it in, going to read it in. He was a professor of sociology at New College of Florida and later at Eastern Michigan University. And he was one of the founding co-chairmen 
for the Committee for Scientific Investigation or Claims of the Paranormal. PSYCOP! CSI cop. Remember that? You, yeah, we, oh, yeah. yes, we've talked about them quite a bit. Yes, of course I do. Of course. And also, he's a founder of the Society for Scientific Exploration. But he has a, uh, I don't think we got into this before, but because I probably didn't read down his wiki page far enough, but here's something he said about pseudo-skepticism, which I found interesting because, again, like with this, it, you, I think the tone of uh, your opening here was that uh, people are being skeptical, but they're not sure why. Yeah. And I think it helps to know why you think the way you do and why you think the things you do, because that is also part of the show. That's what we explore here. The unexamined life is, uh, is it worth living? Probably, but just a lot less interesting. So here's what uh, the section on pseudoskepticism says. Marcello Truzzi popularized the term pseudoskepticism in response to skeptics who, in his opinion, made negative claims without bearing the burden of proof of those claims. So while he was a professor of sociology at Eastern Michigan University, he discussed this topic of pseudo-skepticism in uh, the, one of those journals there, the Zetetic Scholar. This is from Marcello Truzzi. He says, In science, the burden of proof falls upon the claimant, and the more extraordinary a claim, the heavier is the burden of proof demanded. The true skeptic takes an agnostic position, one that says the claim is not proved rather than disproved. He asserts, that the claimant has not borne the burden of proof and that science must continue to build its cognitive map of reality without incorporating the extraordinary claim as a new quote-unquote fact. Since the true skeptic does not assert a claim, he has no burden to prove anything. He just goes on using the established theories of conventional science as usual. And that's in quotes, conventional science. But if a critic asserts that there is evidence for disproof, that he has a negative hypothesis, saying, for instance, that a seeming psi, PSI, result was actually due to an artifact, he is making a claim and therefore also has to bear a burden of proof. Kind of love that. It's a little dense for me. Can you simplify it? Because I'm... <laughs> what I mean, I'm saying you know. is that, uh, this is what I'm saying. If you're a skeptic and you say, I saw alien artifact and it is rubbish, that is totally a hoax. It's like, well, what's your proof? Well, I just feel like it is. Right. That's not enough. Right. It's like Cyril Wecht, the notable forensic examiner. He says, like, well, a lot of the procedures look right. It doesn't look human to me. That's all I can tell you. And he may not believe it. I don't believe he was one of the gentlemen who ha had his comments edited out. He may not believe that at all. But he's like, well, look, all I can tell you is that, uh, yeah, some procedures look correct. It's pretty wacky. Doesn't look human. I don't know what it is. That's as far as you can go. That's what I believe Marcello Truzzi was saying. You can't say as a skeptic, like, it's baloney and, and uh, I don't need to prove it. I don't right. need to prove it because okay. I just feel like it's baloney. Right. The burden is on you if you say that to back it up, back up your words. Right. Your so money what is your, your mouth proof? Is. Yeah. Yeah. So that's all he's saying is that that's also a burden. Uh, so there you go. So he says uh, the true skeptic takes an agnostic position. It's like, I, I don't know. And that true skeptic says the claim is not proved rather than saying it's disproved. That's the crux there. I could say it's not proved to be real, but I'm not saying it's been disproved because I have, I, have, <laughs> I have no evidence of that. And that's where you should lie. It's like, you can have your feelings, you can have your hunches, but you can't say it's baloney and I knew it because of this, because there is no this. Right. Okay, so here's, here's something I'll finish up with. This is a statement from uh, Susan Blackmore. Now, she's a parapsychologist. Uh, we've mentioned in our Life After Death series with Rich 
we spoke about her because uh, she started off being, uh, I think, buying into it, being a believer. And then over the years, she became more and more skeptical. And then eventually she became a psychop fellow in 1991. So as it goes on uh, later here in the same uh, section of the, of the wiki page for Marcello, it says the term has found occasional use in fringe fields where opposition from those within the scientific mainstream or from scientific skeptics is strong. So that's what he means by where the term pseudo-skepticism is found. And this is a, I thought, a funny quote from Susan Blackmore here, describing what she termed as the worst kind of pseudo-skepticism. She says, there are some members of the skeptics groups who clearly believe they know the right answer prior to inquiry. They appear not to be interested in weighing alternatives, investigating strange claims, or trying out psychic experiences or altered states for themselves. Heaven forbid. That's a little parenthesis with an explanation point. Heaven forbid. But only in promoting their own particular belief structure and cohesion. There's the nut of that. They're just out to repeat what they already believe. That's what I, I spent a lot of time on this. That's what I'm going with. And so it's all baloney unless uh, it's what I say it is. Uh, she goes on to say, and I like this part too. I have to say it. Most of these people are men. Indeed, I have not met a single woman of this type. And scene. So as you said before, yes, Carl Sagan popularized the term extraordinary claims require extraordinary evidence. And that became known as the Sagan standard, but it is derived from Pierre Simon de Laplace. Again, that quote, the weight of evidence for an extraordinary claim must be proportioned to its strangeness. My point is, if you're looking at just a, a piece of evidence, I think we all go by visual visual evidence, we weigh that pretty strongly. It might be our benchmark here. But I don't think that matters at all unless you deep down buy into it. And that has a lot of factors. Do you, are you coming to the table with uh, an open mind and a hopeful belief that maybe it's true? Are you coming to the table saying, I didn't believe it in any way? And this looks extra fake. Because to me, that's like going on Yelp and, and writing a review for an Italian restaurant. It's like, this Italian food is terrible. It's like, well, do you like Italian food? No, I don't. <laughs> you shouldn't be commenting at all. Right. You, you went in not, not liking it, and now it's, you've proven it right. You don't like it. When you look at something like this, think about how you think about these things. Why does it uh, seem like the burden of extraordinary proof has not been met with you? Well, we all have our reasons. But then ask yourself, what do you consider proof? And I don't think that, uh, well, as, as uh, uh, Will Rogers famously said, People aren't convinced by argument. They're convinced by observation. So unless you were there, like with a ghost experience, or you were in the autopsy room and like, man, they cut that thing open and it stank. And but man, it looks so real. And you were you were there and you you realized it it wasn't raspberry jam and it wasn't foam rubber. You're not gonna know. But in this case, like, look, it's like what Scott and I said. We we looked at it, it's like well, it's not sitting right, but like, yeah, good job. Yeah. <laughs> it's uh, yeah, not too shabby. So after hearing Spiros's story and seeing the photos of what he's presented as a compelling argument and some physical proof that he hoaxed it, I'm pretty convinced it's all a hoax, as opposed to what Ray Santilli has presented as an argument and physical proof, the few film frames, as there being a genuine original film. But here's my final statement. Has all this just been a waste of time to look into then? Well, if you don't care a whit about UFOs, aliens, or the paranormal, then sure, most likely for you, it's been a waste of time. But if you like to contemplate the paranormal, aliens, 
psychology, sociology, myths, legends, and hoaxes, popular culture, TV, and media, then it's been as worthwhile an examination as any. Well said, friend. Woo! What? Nicely, nicely done. Oh, you're well, still here. Oh my yeah. God. He's... Well, no, I, I did I did step out for a haircut and I, <laughs> I, I went and got some uh, dinner, but I'm back. Hey, you got to admit, I did not, I, I kept my ramblings to quite a minimum during the during the middle part of this. <laughs> this is one of my favorite, there was a Spinal Tap special a long time ago, I think I've referenced this <laughs> before, where the guy does the drum solo and during the drum, no, guitar yes. solo, and one of them goes out and gets a haircut during the... <laughs> solo <laughs> that is pretty good well here, here's what i'm gonna say my conclusions okay. are a lot shorter and much more self-centered and less uh well-informed oh. but you know for me i was trying to wrap my head around why i wanted to talk about this and what i wanted to take away from it and this show sure. this series this idea of examining alien autopsy a known hoax has been a bit of an epiphany for me and mm-hmm. I'm going to say that, uh, you know, it's just not all that exciting. We knew it was fake from the start. So it's it's different. It's a different kind of show for us. But, right. it's, you know, I, I wasn't obsessing about Alien Autopsy at all. I actually hadn't thought about it much since it came yeah. out. I wasn't sitting around thinking, oh, we got to cover this. It wasn't even in our story folder. But when we were presented with the opportunity to talk to the guy who made it, well, mm-hmm. that was the story, for me anyway. Sure. Yeah, and I thought it was good to meet and interview someone so absurdly meticulous that this hoax convinced millions of people, if not more, there might, just might, be aliens out there, and they may have visited us, even if they didn't already believe it for other reasons or other things that they had seen. So it doesn't matter what I personally thought about the film. The lesson for me in this series was that regardless of whether you bought Alien Autopsy as real or not, there are people out there capable of pulling something off that will be so good that if they don't come clean about it, you might wonder about it forever. To me, this is a powerful reminder that, like, for example, if the Sally House pushed my needle pretty far towards believing in things I didn't believe in before, Spiros Malaris and people like him, albeit very, there are very few and far between, I think, that are going to put this kind of dedication into something like this. But they're out there and they're still trying to trick us. And we have to remember it every time we look at something on Astonishing Legends. Well, very well said, my friend. And I, I think your needle was moved because of what I was alluding to earlier with the Sally House. You felt it. Yes. It wasn't a video I took and said, Scott, look at this. You're like, yeah, this, the broom handle fell over, you idiot. Like, that's not a, that's nothing. What are you talking about? You were there. You felt it. You felt it. It was a physical, visceral reaction. And it wasn't infrasound, I can guarantee you that. That's what makes the difference for you. And so now, though, when you compare this to examining what you've experienced here and how the sausage is made, how the magician does the trick, are you saying that you you maybe believe in Sally House a little bit less? Not at all. I, I actually believe more in it. And that's because, as you just said, I was there. We mm-hmm. were all there. Tess was there with us. Even my dad and stepmom were there. <laughs> We were all yeah, there. It's true. I know yeah. we didn't hoax anything. I know for a fact that that DR60 was upstairs in a closed room by itself on an empty floor of that house in a quiet, tiny town. I know that was real because I was there. Like you just said, if you were in the room yeah. and you saw the alien being cut open, you know, but like who gets to be in that room? Who, you know, nobody. So are three or four people, if it's ever even real. But here's what else I know. If you're not there yourself, you have to always consider that someone like Spiros Malaris may have been, and he may Mm -hmm. have just tricked you. So for me, in order to become a better investigator, 
for the sake of our show from here on out, I'm always going to remember all of the time and trouble that Spiros and John Humphreys went to to make Alien Autopsy. And I'm going to be honest with myself and say, even though I wasn't sure it was real, it left me with a what if. So I vow to remind myself that that little ounce of doubt can be introduced by a determined but decidedly terrestrial and mundane creature, a human being. But just keep in mind, Spiros Malaris isn't saying that aliens don't exist. He's just saying that he created this one. That's going to wrap up tonight's show, folks. A very special thanks to Spiros Malaris for his time. We'll be back next week with something completely different. Stay tuned. Please remember to support our sponsors. They help keep the show free and the lights on in Blanket Fortiana. Special thanks to John Bolin. Hey, this is Sean Nelson. T-A-I-L-Y. Wait, I think I see something. S-K-W. Our show is edited by Sarah Voorhees Wendell and co-produced by Tess Feifel, who is also our head of research. Our theme, which is available as a ringtone, was composed by Judson Crane, and our sound design and additional composing is by Ryan McCullough. Special thanks to the Astonishing Research Corps. But most importantly, we want to thank you, our listeners. Visit our store at astonishinglegends.com or interact with us and other listeners on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. You can also support the show at patreon.com slash astonishinglegends, where patrons have access to additional bonus content. No part of this show may be reproduced anywhere without permission. Copyright Astonishing Legends Productions. Good night. <laughs>